Hiya, Georgie. Do you want a balloon, Georgie? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Now we aren't strangers, are we? I gotta go. Go? There's cotton candy and rides and all sorts of surprises down here. And balloons, too. Do they float? Oh, yes. They float. And when you're down here with me, you float too! Welcome to Now Playing's review of It. It's me and the Losers Club has officially begun. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. It's summer. We're supposed to be having fun. This isn't fun. This is scary and disgusting. Hosted by Arnie. Here I am, Wheezy. Stuart. I am eternal child. I am the eater of worlds and of children. And you and Jacob. What a bunch of handsome old men. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Go blow your dad, you mullet-wearing asshole! Listener discretion is advised. Time to float. Today, we're discussing it. Starring Harry Anderson, Dennis Christopher, Richard Mazur, Annette O'Toole, Tim Reed, John Ritter, and Richard Thomas... Special appearance by Tim Curry as Pennywise. Was Lonnie Anderson busy? Like, where were all the sitcom actors? What is this? I thought this was a horror movie. They couldn't get Alan Thicke to be one of the kids. <laughs> Directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, who does more comedy than horror. You know, Halloween 3. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Depending on how you want to slice comedy. This is the now playing co-host that's down to clown, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the host who still insists he sees the ghost, Jacob. We're here, a movie that has been so requested even before we started doing Stephen King. And then once we did, I can't count the number of times I've heard, have you guys reviewed it? And this is going to be the show with the most fun inflection ever, as we constantly emphasize the proper noun, it. Yeah, it is it for me. It certainly was the Stephen King book that I read that made me want to go back and read everything else that he had written. Part of the appeal was I had just turned 13, sixth grade, and I had never taken on a book as big as that book. My dad was a member of Book of the Month Club. <laughs> the thing showed up like a phone book yeah. on our doorstep. <laughs> I mean, over a thousand pages. 1,400 pages weighing over four pounds at retail. And, you know, Aliens had just come out the month before, and that movie and this really kicked off my horror movie phase. Like, these were the things that made me get so deep into horror in my teenage years. I had talked to you about Stephen King before this. I remember bus rides talking about it. And then I remember one day, you showed me your copy of It, and there was a character who killed himself, and you're like, and he wrote this on the wall. And there was a drawing in the book. I'd never seen a book that had a drawing in it where the text goes. And it looked like a letter H. And I'm like, I don't get it. Is it H? And you're like, no, it's the word it in blood. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. Fast forward six months. I moved to Florida. I didn't know a damn soul. A 1,200-page book was exactly up my alley. I read it summer of 87, and that's the last time I read it until this year when I reread it for these reviews. 
and I am once again the King Newbie or the Never Have Been. I have not read it, but I do feel like this is the one. Yeah, sure, there's The Shining. But when I think of The Shining, I don't think of King. I think of Kubrick. The same with Carrie. I think of those movies, but it... Because until 2017, it didn't get a good adaptation. (laughs) We'll talk about the 1991. But I do feel like this is the Stephen King book. I mean, it's the scary clown, which, sure, there's John Wayne Gacy. But, like, this is such a trope, I feel like, in horror now. I'm sure this isn't where it originated. But I think King did popularize that whole concept. It's funny you say that. I was going to ask you, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of it? I want to just put out there, one of my favorite things about Stephen King in his first decade of output was to look at the cover, because there were so many of them, and I never knew what they were about. I hadn't seen many of the movies, so it was fun to try and decipher from that picture on the cover, what is this one going to be about? It, first edition, hardback, did not have no clown on it. It had the alien hand, right? A clawed hand. It looked like a Gremlins movie. It looked like yeah. Stripe was reaching his clawed hand out of a sewer grate. And that's how I read it. Many people now think it is about Pennywise the Clown attacking children. But I read it as the story of a monster that had no form. That it could be anything that it needed to to get you. It sort of embodied the poltergeist catchphrase. It knows what scares you. It is primal fear incarnate. And that's how I read the novel. I never thought about it as being about a killer clown. I did think about it as a killer clown. It was the form he took the most. You know, he'd always reveal himself. It's me as a killer clown. But to me, it wasn't about a killer clown so much as it was about an interdimensional spider monster fighting a giant turtle. Yeah, the spider. (laughs) If you asked me to name its form, I wouldn't have said clown. I would have said spider after reading that book. And my memories coming back to this book, you know, having not read it and not counting what I was recalling from the TV movie that I've seen many times, but my big memories were the giant turtle. Oh boy. The sweat lodge. The uh, masturbation scene and the gangbang scene. Yeah. Okay, I haven't seen any of this. and I've watched the 90 version. I've watched 2017. <laughs> I guess the new one. 2019, I'll get turtles and gangbangs. I'm not sure what they're going to do for that, but I do feel like they have the hardest road. It, 2017, took my favorite stuff about the book. What I related to it the most was I was a child in the 1980s in love with monsters. Reading a story about kids in the 50s being in love with monsters was something I really related to. And that was my favorite stuff. The adult problems and anxieties and coming back, that just had less of a tether to what I understood. I didn't understand the adult world. So that wasn't the best stuff in the book in my mind. And maybe it's different now that you're an adult, but I always got the feeling from talking to people. Now, granted, it was people my age. So when I was a kid, yes, the kids love the kids stuff the best. When I watched this TV series, I only watched the first half, the stuff with the kids. And that is the stuff that sticks out to me because it's what I've experienced the most with this story. Yeah, November 1990. I had gone through Stephen King by that point. I had actually, just a few months before, written for English class a 15-page paper, which was huge in 10th grade. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 15 pages is huge. I'll just say that is about one-tenth the length of my written-out books and nachos on the stand that I did (laughs) for fun. Sure. But, you know, again, teenager, I'm not so motivated. But, yeah, I, I wrote all about his major themes and all of his major works 
I was a little burned out on King, but I was excited to see that this novel was finally getting adapted, although I was skeptical. I did not think that ABC television was the best place for it, and I'll go ahead and spoil it. I turned this off on the first night. I didn't even get through the first two hours. I hated it, the TV miniseries. Yeah, we're going to kill some sacred cows tonight because from what I'm getting from our listeners, millennials, you know, just five years younger than us, hold this up the way our generation holds up Goonies. People like this? People love this. They love it? Yes. But I think the only way to love it is to have been eight and it scared you when you watched it in 1990 and then to look back with fond memories. I don't know if it's going to scare eight-year-olds. I showed my eight-year-old daughter a clip off of this because I'm like, I don't know. It might be too scary for you. You're a little timid. The clip that I fell upon on YouTube is balloons popping with blood splattering on people in the library. She was cracking up. She thought it was hilarious. What I was most excited for was the casting choice of Tim Curry. I was a huge Tim Curry fan, and mostly based on Clue and Legend, which were movies that came out in the mid-80s, neither of which made a lot of money, but I do think have been reassessed and reevaluated now, in part because of that British actor and the way he was able to embody these outrageous characters. Of course, Rocky Horror, which I think I discovered after I saw it, is his claim to fame. But I think that Tim Curry's take on Pennywise makes a good poster. For many people, he will be the one to beat as far as the rogues gallery of Stephen King monsters. For me, in 1990, I'd kind of gotten out of Stephen King right after Eyes of the Dragon, because that was also summer of 87. I remember reading that. And then I discovered Star Trek and became a hardcore Trekkie, and the only thing I read were Star Trek novels and Star Trek movie novelizations. I mean, I just lived and breathed Star Trek. And then I kind of got out of that post-Star Trek V, and I started to get back in King. It was 1990 that I actually subscribed to the Stephen King Book Club. I read Misery, and I was getting back into King, so I would have seen it no matter what. I was watching a lot of network television back then, a lot of ABC I don't mind revealing I was watching Full House on the Weekly and Family Matters and Perfect Strangers. Oh yeah, TGIF. I was there every Friday. Not only that, but this is Twin Peaks. This aired a week after Maddie Ferguson got her face smashed in the picture. So that was going on on ABC. They were feeling a little bit more risque in this moment, right before the Disney buyout, about doing things that were darker, horror, violent, scary. So what got me excited for this A- Stephen King, B, Harry Anderson. I love me some Night Court and see John Ritter. You were excited that John Ritter, sitcom star, was in Stephen King's It? I could be excited for an episode of Three's Company with John Ritter, but It with John Ritter? Like, yes. <laughs> a TV reunion of him and Suzanne Summers signed me up in 1990. But him being an it, I felt like that was a big problem with me and my enthusiasm level was the sitcom stars. Oh, looking at it now, I agree. But looking at John Ritter's career, the thing I had seen him in most recently by that point was this, in my mind, kind of darker movie, Skin Deep. Yeah, it was a Blake Edwards sex comedy. Mm -hmm. And then he also had done a TV series I saw every episode of Hooperman, which was a dramedy. So mm -hmm. it had its funny moments, but it had its drama moments. Listen, I wasn't thinking about whether or not they would fit the material. I was thinking, I like these actors. I'll tune in to see these actors. Tim Curry, I only knew from Clue at that point. And I actually thought 
that was a choice I didn't understand. I'm like, why would you get the butler from Clue to play the horror clown? I was actually a bit nervous about Tim Curry. I'll say now he's definitely the best thing about this series. But I went in in 1990, skeptical, watched both nights. I remember the first night thinking, meh. And I remember the second night thinking, meh. I came back just to watch the last 20 minutes because I wanted to see the goddamn spider. And well, <laughs> I see a spider. <laughs> it's a $12 million budget, which is, sounds like a lot of money in 1990, but not when you consider that this thing was four hours and a whole cast of characters. If you're wondering how this came to be, the producers really had all the power here. It seems like even Tommy Lee Wallace was brought in as a hired gun to shoot. Yeah, he is sort of a John Carpenter hanger-on. Like, he's always been around in the Carpenter realm and was handed off Halloween 3 season of The Witch. He also did Fright Night 2, for whatever that's worth. He's worked in the horror genre. He helped Carpenter with production on the first two Halloween films, which is why he got the keys to the kingdom with Halloween 3 and had worked in television quite a bit. But to hear him tell it, the way casting happened on this... There were no auditions. It was literally agents and network executives on the phone saying, who's available during this time we're filming and who will work in the budget we have during it? All right, you're available. You're filming. Also, Tommy Lee Wallace is very candid on the commentary done many, many years later on the Blu-ray about how much he is dissatisfied with this ending and blames the book. He's like... I knew when reading the book, this ending wasn't going to be good, and we just had to get through it, and then the effects didn't work out the way I wanted. So it seems to me like he didn't have a whole lot of creative control. He even tried to hide the spider, and the network execs were like, no, you're showing it. <laughs> yeah, those animated cockroaches on raid commercials look better than the spider. It's ooh, We'll talk about it. But Stephen King didn't have a lot of influence either. It seemed like they bought his book, but he, unlike the later Shining miniseries, for example, wasn't working on the screenplay, wasn't really giving notes, I don't think. Well, let's point out, this was the first. This was the first Stephen King miniseries on ABC, and after it, we'd get a slew of them, including The Stand, Tommyknockers, The Langoliers. This one was number one in the ratings both nights, Sunday much higher than Monday, but it was a huge success for them, and King's name became more valued as it went. In this case, all he said was, I know it's television, do what you can, but feel free to take as many liberties with the book as you want. I'll just preview now, this one is far closer to his book than the 2017 movie we're going to talk about next week. Wow, that's shocking. Yeah, and I feel like they could have taken even more liberties, but uh, in order to talk about that, maybe we should get into the plot. Arnie, why don't you tell them what happens on both nights of It? Well, this was a two-night show. The first night of the show introduces us to our seven main characters in two interweaving time periods. In 1960, when they were early adolescents and best friends, and in 1990, when they had turned middle age and reunite for the first time. We flash between past and present in each segment of the series, one segment per character. And those characters are... Jonathan Brandis, playing young, stuttering Bill Denenborough, who grows into a world-famous horror author, played by Richard John Boy Thomas. 
I recognize that mole anywhere. Me too. Wait, they didn't give that to him as a character piece? No, that's him. You never watched The Waltons? I tried not to. I thought he had cancer or something going on. <laughs> no, that's why they on Brandis had to put the mole on him is to make him look like John Boy. Okay. John Ritter plays adult Ben Haskum, a big shot architect who, as a child, was severely overweight and enamored with Beverly Marsh, a girl abused by her father played as a child by Emily Perkins. She grows up to be played by Annette O'Toole, a fashion designer who suffers physical abuse at the fists of her boyfriend. Seth Green is young, nearsighted wisecracker Richie Tozier, who grows up to be famous talk show host played by Harry Anderson. Dennis Christopher plays adult asthmatic Eddie Kasparak, who, as a child, had a mother with Munchausen syndrome by proxy, convincing Eddie he's always sick and convincing doctors to give him drugs that were placebos. Richard Mazur plays adult Stanley Uris, a Jewish accountant, and normally I wouldn't call out his religion, but as a child, that's really his only defining trait, both in the book and in this. Finally, we have Mike Hanlon, played as an adult by Tim Venus Flytrap Reed. And of the seven, all left their hometown of Derry, Maine, except for Mike, who stayed in the town and worked as a librarian. And as a child, his defining characteristic is that he was black and in 1960 was discriminated against. <laughs> You're not wrong. That is his character. Yeah, I mean, there's the fat one, the asthmatic one, the black one, the Jewish one, the stutterer, the neurotic, <laughs> the girl. And the black. <laughs> yeah. This is what they have. <laughs> their hometown of Derry had a history of tragedy. Every 30 years, there was a spike in murders, disasters, and missing or killed children. In 1960, the first tragedy was the death of Georgie Denborough, Bill's little brother murdered in the street. That summer, the killer starts to go after Bill and his friends who call themselves the Losers Club. But the killer isn't some deranged man. It's a monster that feeds on the fear of children. It most often appears in the guise of Pennywise the Dancing Clown, played by Tim Curry. There's also a more terrestrial threat to the Losers Club, a knife-wielding bully named Henry Bowers, played by Michael Cole, with his cronies Victor Chris and Belch Huggins. Each of the children have individual encounters with Pennywise, so they band together and hunt the monster to its lair in the sewers. The beast is beaten by the children's faith. Their belief that Eddie's inhaler is full of battery acid burns the monster, and a silver earring fired from a slingshot injures the beast. It retreats and hibernates for 30 years, during which time the children became adults and, through some form of magic, all who left Derry forgot about it and each other. And Henry confesses to all the child murders and is sent to a sanitarium. This brings us to the second night of the miniseries, which focuses much more on the adults. In 1990, the killings have begun again, and Mike, the only one who remembers the 1960s, calls all the adult losers and reminds them they promise to come back should it return again. All do except Stanley, who kills himself rather than face it again. Back in Derry, the adults are tormented by Pennywise, but their confidence and lack of fear prevents it from killing them, so it calls to Henry in the asylum, helps Henry escape, and sets him to kill the losers. He succeeds in stabbing and severely injuring Mike before the rest fight him off and accidentally kill him with his own knife. The remaining five go into the sewers, with the two silver earrings also, one representing Mike, the other representing Stan. The tension ratchets up when Bill realizes It has a hostage. His wife, Audra, played by Olivia Juliet Hussey, Psycho 4 in the house, <laughs> who had come to Derry worried about her husband. The losers go and fight It, which is in its original form, a giant spider. 
and is able to paralyze losers with the spotlights in its underbelly that it calls its deadlights. Get it? It's a pun. Yeah, I'm not laughing. Eddie is killed by it, but Beverly hits it with a silver earring and it retreats. The four remaining losers chase it and rip it to pieces with their bare hands. With it gone, the losers' memories start to fade and they return to their own lives, though Ben and Beverly have fallen in love and leave together. But Audra remains catatonic from its deadlights. So Bill takes his wife on a wild ride on his old bicycle. <laughs> yeah, we're already laughing because nobody could understand that in it. And maybe it's his speed, or maybe that he bikes crazily through oncoming traffic, but Audra wakes up and embraces her husband as credits roll. <laughs> yeah, and as credits start, I notice a very interesting one for Tim Curry. Special appearance by... He really is not in this movie very much. It was a shock to find out that, yeah, he's maybe in, what, five scenes? And he did not want to do this movie because of one of the movies you mentioned, Legend. He had such a hard time with the makeup process there, and the original intent was that he'd be under very heavy makeup to be a monstrous clown, and he had to negotiate with Tommy Lee Wallace. He tried it once under the full makeup, once just in clown makeup, and Wallace said, all right, your performance is scary enough that we can go with just the clown makeup and a forehead. That was the compromise, is he had to undergo the forehead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed that big forehead. But he was really resistant to doing this because of the makeup work involved. Oh, I thought maybe he saw the stop motion work that's going to come later. <laughs> no, that was the last thing they filmed to give the puppeteers as much time as possible to work on the spider. Oh, I'm not even talking. I'm talking about the shower drain. Oh, that, that was clever. That was, we'll get there, but I like that. That's in a Tim Burton kind of vein, I thought. But we do see him very briefly blowing in the sheets here as we start in present day, May 28th, in Derry, where little Ann Winterberger is riding along on a tricycle singing, what else? Itsy Bitsy Spider. They're trying to tell you from the get-go, pay attention to the motif of spiders. They are building up to a spider. But what we see here in the sheets very briefly is Tim Curry saying hi as the clown. They could have done a little bit more here with Lori's death. You know, you could say ABC Network TV, we can't show this. But again, I want to point out, Twin Peaks had a very graphic murder just the week before. Shocking. To this day, a scene that will take your breath away that reveals the killer of Laura Palmer. The fact that we only see a tricycle wheel blowing in the wind tells you right away, we are going to run away from violence. We are not going to show. Tommy Lee Wallace is not David Lynch. They pushed ABC standards and practices to the limit with this, but they didn't have the pull that Lynch had. And I also don't think they have the artistry. If you compare blood, that scene isn't as bloody as you think. It's just terrifying because it had a auteur behind the camera, and this has the maker of Halloween 3. Yeah, there's nothing scary. You're saying they pushed the limits of ABC standards? Wow, they must have had very high standards because you could walk under this limbo stick. Like, there's nothing edgy here, nothing violent. Again, my eight-year-old laughed, and she gets scared very easily. Yeah, I, it pulls punches, and that is a terrible way to start a four-hour horror movie. You don't want to feel like this thing is never going to show me what I want. Let's look at why they would do this in a miniseries, though, is because it's a huge book. I think it was felt, much like The Stand, 
that it couldn't be adapted to a movie. It was just too much to fit into a movie. And in 1990, people would have thought you were crazy to think about filming sequels back to back. I think Back to the Future 2 and 3 was doing that. And that was like major news that they were going to spend all that money to make 3 when they weren't quite sure if 2 was going to be a success. So the idea of a duology like we'd have today, like we're going to discuss, inconceivable. So let's put it on TV. But that has its own set of drawbacks. And it should be said, cable is not what it was. HBO didn't have its own line of premium movies. And really, there wasn't a whole lot of other channels yet. That was still a thing that was coming with satellite TV and all that. That was the onset. But right now, TV miniseries on primetime networks were a big deal. They got huge audiences, and they did get as many people many times as movies at the movie theater. And we've talked about King, his success, his failures in theaters. What was the status of King? Because it feels like at, at this point, after Maximum Overdrive, after so many of those kind of movies, TV was the only place to go. I feel like the 80s was the era of King as the movie adaptations, and that the 90s became the TV. But 1989 was Pet Cemetery, which was a huge one for him. Okay, fair enough. And then right after this miniseries, Misery hit. And that would win an Academy Award for Kathy Bates. Yeah, I know that was huge. It was good synergy to have this on TV. And I remember seeing Misery ads between every commercial break about. And, uh, you know, we laugh now, but Lawnmower Man would come quickly after. And that was a it was a hit. Sorry to say. But yes, his name was still very much a draw in this era. Maximum Overdrive had been ignored. It was not a problem for him. Yeah, it felt like this was a comeback. After the Dino De Laurentiis years of schlock, Stand By Me came in 86, and I feel like that gave a little bit more credibility. They were still churning out the shit once in a while, but that was getting downplayed, and we were getting some of the better film adaptations around this time. So, yeah, it was the start of, I'd say, the second renaissance. We're in the third, I would say. But we had the King 80s renaissance, you know, starting with Carrie, leading to Dino. Then we had the second renaissance, which I think started around Stand By Me, and goes probably through Shawshank. And then now we're in, I think, the third renaissance with a couple standout pieces in between. Yeah, if you ignore Dark Tower and Pet Cemetery. Yeah, there's always misses, but I do agree with Arnie. I think that there is an excitement to look and adapt King again, both on television and at the movie theaters. I mean, we can blame it for Pet Cemetery and Dark Tower. Yeah, the new 2017, absolutely. And I expect more, quite frankly. I expect us to go back to a lot of these adaptations. They're remaking The Stand as a limited miniseries for Hulu. There's a lot of King in production right now. They're talking about Firestarter, the TV series. Fortunately, a lot of it's on TV. I mean, we've had Under the Dome on TV. We've had Castle Rock on TV. He's all over. And let's be clear, we're covering it, this TV miniseries, precisely because it was two nights, and we can call that a movie. If it becomes a eight or nine episode limited series, I don't know that we're going to cover all those limited series that come. Yeah, I mean, we did The Stand. It was four nights, eight hours. But if it's an ongoing series like The Mist or Under the Dome, that's clearly off the table. Right. But back to it. Yeah, we have this pretty bloodless opening. And I haven't watched this in a long time, but I have watched it a lot when it was out on VHS originally. I'm going to guess prior to 2017 when there was a better version. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So I'd say this was my fifth or sixth time watching it, but my memory of the 2017 version was so vivid. And then I reread the book. I'm like, are they not starting with Georgie? 
what's with this little girl? What's with it being in the modern times? No, they're going to have two child killings here in the beginning. Is the book like this? Does it jump back and forth or is it straight chronological? It is definitely all over. Yeah, it's not even back and forth where like current day starts at a point and goes forward and we interlace the 60s, which starts at a point and goes forward. We hop all around the timeline in the 60s, but the modern day continues to go forward. And I think King liked the children's stuff a lot more too. It feels like there's a lot more pages devoted to the 50s than there are to the 80s. And the stuff in the 50s, even as an adult reading it, is the better stuff. I mean, this is Stand By Me, where instead of finding a body, they're finding a monster. And instead of going their separate ways and never seeing each other again, it's what if Stand By Me got back together to find another body, or in this case, to fight the monster again. And the way it's told is the children fight the monster in parallel with the adults fighting the monster. So the climaxes come pretty much simultaneously. And the conceit is the adults don't remember. So the flashbacks are the adults remembering what happened to them that they couldn't remember since it happened. Right. And I think that both movie adaptations are wise to peel back that structure and try to tell something that is going to be a little bit more easy to follow. Network television in 1990 with commercial breaks, and you can't guarantee that the audience that's going to watch part two even saw part one because maybe they had something to do on Sunday. You really do have to think about structure. And the biggest compliment that I can give this movie is they have very wisely pared this book down to fit a TV movie miniseries format. Beyond that, again, I learned while we were doing earlier Stephen King TV, you not only have to have a cliffhanger at the end of the night that's going to bring them back the next night, but you have to have a mini cliffhanger at the end of each act. They consider each between commercial breaks is an act of the TV show. Oh, yeah. It feels like this first night, each kid, their backstory is the end, and then we go to a commercial break. Yeah, it has to be a mini cliffhanger just so that during the ring around the collar and Toyota What a Feeling ads, that they'll stay for the next one. What I didn't know, and it's really well done, is a two-hour night of television would have seven acts or seven segments of the show punctuated by commercials, and there are seven characters. So the way screenwriter Lawrence D. Cohen, who's done a lot of TV and stuff. Yeah, I think he did the actual Salem's Lot TV adaptation with Toby Hooper. Oh, wow. Since the 70s? Yeah. Yeah, he also worked on Carrie. He's had a lot of King involvement, but the way he did it was each act would be devoted to one character that night. So... It does feel like everybody's equally important. This is an ensemble piece, which is why Harry Anderson is first build. They just go alphabetically. And here's what I'll say. Structurally, that's very, very wise. But over the course of, really, it's 90 minutes because you got to give 30 minutes to the commercials. I get very tired of always meeting a new character. I do believe one of the things that they should have done is consolidated. You don't need seven kids. How about five? That was my takeaway when I saw the 2017 version, not having this one fresh in my mind. I do feel like because they broke this into those seven acts, those commercial breaks, I could keep a handle on these kids better, these characters with their stories, just because, again, you're going to get a little vignette for each one. I like the structure, but I do agree, Stuart, knowing where this story is going to go now. Yeah, cut a couple out. What this first night does is create a lot of buildup for an actual fight that's going to be coming on the next night. So really, all you're really doing is set up. This is all backstory. As such, you could probably miss it, right? Because the stuff you want, the fight, would be the second night. 
if that's what you want. I don't want the fight. I want the fright. And this is Tim Curry's night to shine. He's much more effective against the children than he'll be against the adults. Yeah, I'll agree. Like, yeah, you want that resolution, I guess. I never came back for it, but <laughs> I feel this is the scarier stuff. First of all, it's just kids. And like kids being in harm is just scarier than adults being in harm. So the fact that they're facing this weird monster, demon, other dimensional clown, that's just scarier. And if this is a horror story. Uh, yeah, I do want the scary. Yeah. So the setup is basically from this kickoff, Mike Harlan is now going to break out his phone book and make a call and each commercial break, you come back and you're going to meet one of the seven. Let's start with Bill Denbro and his ponytail and his mole. Oh my God, that hair. Oh, Bill, not Stephen King? No, it actually, King claims it was based off Peter Straub. I don't believe him. This is Stephen King. I don't necessarily <laughs> do either because if you read the book, the parallels between him and King feel legion. I was shocked he didn't have a coke habit in this story. <laughs> Later on, we're going to see a lot of his books lying around the library and there's titles like The Glowing, which sounds a lot like The Shining. <laughs> but honestly, here's my biggest problem with this miniseries. It is not the spider, surprisingly. It is Richard Thomas. He is so bad in this. I couldn't believe that he was still acting so many years after the Waltons. I couldn't believe people would let him act. And then that ponytail just makes him look like a douche. <laughs> yeah, that ponytail is hard to take. You think he is the worst actor here? I do believe him to be the worst. Huh. That's the thing, Arnie. I think everyone's pretty bad. And look, I like John Ritter. When he's doing comedy, I'll go watch Bad Santa. I don't want to watch him in a scary movie. It's just all these actors feel very TV, very sitcom to me. He was amazing in Bride of Chucky. <laughs> I don't remember it, but I, I take you at your word. I'll be kinder. I think everyone here is pretty flat. <laughs> I wouldn't say anyone was bad. I just feel like you've got a lot of actors out of their depth in stuff that they don't have a whole lot of time to character build. Everything is going to be done in shorthand. What we see with Bill here is that he's hammering away on his word processor because he's writing the script for his actress wife who's shooting the movie at the same time. I mean, I guess that could happen. But typically, the screenwriter is not on set helping the movie being made, except in special circumstances. What we're told is the only reason he's agreed to do this movie in London is that he seems to want to repair a relationship that is kind of gone cold. My issue with the adults is they don't really have a story. I like the kid stuff because we'll get some kid story characterization and all that stuff with bullies and whatnot. Once they're adults, first of all, I want to know the odds of seven friends growing up to be writers, comedians that are filling in for Johnny Carson fashion designers, everyone's got a dream job, except Mike, who's just stuck as the librarian. Yeah, it's the turtle. I kid you not, it's the turtle. He's watching over them? Yes, the turtle is watching over them and guiding them, and they're supposed to have parallel lives, where none of them were able to have children even if they wanted to, and they were all very successful, but all very lonely, and none of them remember. The one who doesn't become rich and successful is the one who stays in Derry. And I think that's why he remembers. Mike can know, because he's still a resident and can see when the murders kick back, he hasn't forgotten like everyone else has. I don't think it's wrong to write out the turtle. I think <laughs> they're very good at not trying to work that into what's already an overstuffed night. 
I take it a little bit different. Once we get into the flashback, the best scene in the book, the one you'll always remember, and it comes really early in the novel, is the murder of Georgie. I think that's well recreated here. As long as you don't want to be scared. It may be the best scene in this miniseries because it's not trying to rely on too many special effects and things. It's relying on performances from a very decent child actor here playing Georgie, who would go on to do it again in a teaser short as an adult, and it's kind of weird. It was just a fan film. And then Tim Curry showing his chops as Pennywise. And Curry, I lose the man behind the makeup and the performance. I do not ever think of a Transylvanian transvestite or a funny butler when I watch this. Here's my question, because you guys read the book. Does Pennywise have some hypnotizing power? Why is this kid going to talk to a clown that is in a sewer? My only assumption is he's got some kind of... uh, Look, he's a space spider, so I guess he does have magical powers. But (laughs) I don't know if I'm supposed to take this as just Georgie as talking to a stranger that happens to be a clown in a sewer. Or if there's some draw to approach Pennywise. I just want to say this is happening in, what, 1950? 1960 in this. It was earlier 50s in the book. It was a more naive time. Uh, Clowns in the sewer? How naive were they? Eisenhower era. You could be a clown in the sewer and nobody would blink, maybe. It was more innocent. All I will say is the idea of stranger danger was not present at that time. Suburbia was safe. These kinds of towns would have none of that. The communists had been weeded out and clowns were not a threat. (laughs) And so I can look at this kid in 1960 and go, yeah, he's just hopelessly naive. And that's a big thing that King has as his theme of the book is the kids can see when the adults cannot because the kids still have imagination. And Georgie is the youngest of all the children we're going to see. And yeah, when you're five or six years old like Georgie here, you could see a clown in a sewer and go with it the way I would go to Toys Plus and see a guy in a velvet Hulk outfit and not see a difference between him and Lou Ferrigno. Look, I get the whole Peter Pan thing. You grow up and you forget about Never Never Land. I get it on that level. This is such an extreme situation. I just assume Pennywise like will hypnotize you and you'll have a normal conversation with this clown in a sewer. I don't think it's played that way. I mean, Tim Curry comes off kind of gruff. Like, he sounds like Burgess Meredith. He's more (laughs) Krusty the Clown than Bozo the Clown. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. It is such an extreme situation. I would run if I was five years old. This would scare me. It is hard to imagine what is going on in Georgie's head, but he does feel indebted to get his brother's boat. We saw that his sick brother took the time to construct this paper ship in Georgie's name and told him, be careful with it. And now that it's gone down the drain and there's something, a magical savior that can hand him back this boat, I think that's really all that he's thinking about. Yeah, I take it as child naivete that they don't ask questions, they just see and absorb. And he was taught to like clowns. Yeah, and I guess with Derry, you'll get to realize that these parents are awful. Like, they'll ignore (laughs) things. They don't want to confront the horrible things. So maybe they just never taught little Georgie not to talk to clowns and sewers. It's a little bit of an issue because it's such an extreme situation, but because it's a horror fantasy thing, I could almost go along with it. Here's where we're stuck. 
in our childhood, we lived with the idea of John Wayne Gacy. It was fresh in America's psyche. Ten years beyond his conviction, that's when this movie is airing. Everybody in the world knows about a guy in a clown suit that preys on little boys. You know, the interesting thing is, I went and dug into his legacy, and that isn't actually it. Yeah, he had a job entertaining children as Pogo the Clown, which sounds a lot like Pennywise the Clown. (laughs) I do think King was saying, I am going to make Gacy one of my many menagerie of monsters because that is scaring the 80s. He turned a washing machine into a monster. Why not a John Wayne Gacy clown? Like, it seems obvious. But Gacy's victims were not seduced from birthday parties and charity events. He was not a clown luring them into the basement. All of his victims were between really 16, 19, 20 years old. They were sexual propositions. It was not the story of a clown pulling you down. I think it's things like it that really changed the way that we thought about Gacy. I actually think this became an idea in our head. It got rewritten. And as such, I do feel like this TV movie is about sexual violence against children. We are going to see people that were touched by this clown and not killed. They were allowed to live when, in fact, that's kind of weird, right? If it was a killer clown. They were touched by this childhood figure who was evil and went on to live these wonderful lives and yet have these problems. And then when they couldn't repress anymore, they had to go and face what happened to them. To me, this version of it specifically is about sexual violence against children. I don't know that it necessarily has to be sexual. This is a very chaste TV movie. But violence against children, I mean, even abuse survivors, non-sexual, have repressed trauma that can impact them. Yeah, but I think sexual because Gacy's violence against boys was sexual. Perhaps. I mean, clowns hate King. They don't hate Gacy, they hate King. (laughs) Clowns blame King for making children afraid of clowns. King's response is, don't blame the messenger. Clowns have always been creepy as hell. He doesn't really credit Gacy as inspiration. He credits that he just saw clowns as creepy as hell anyway. And he did start writing this in 81. That would be pretty quick to turn around a Gacy story. No, that's exactly when everyone was talking about Gacy. That it was he was in jail, and then he was painting pictures of clowns. That's really why he got associated. He kept painting Pogo the clown, and they would get sold at auction, and people would be oh so scandalized. So here's another question then, and I guess Pennywise shows up in other forms, but we're going to get a different version of him in 2017. This feels like a very modern, this Tim Curry version, very modern day circus clown. It is straight up like you hire a clown for your kid's birthday, this is what shows up, except for for maybe that large forehead and the sharp teeth, but it is almost Ronald McDonald simple, this design. I don't know if that's what he was going for because the one in 2017 is much more stylized. I I don't know if maybe this is all they had the budget for. 2017 takes a lot of liberties with King's work. King's work described it as very Ronald McDonald. Okay. He actually was saying Bozo meets Clarabelle, but back in the 50s, nobody knew who Ronald McDonald was, but if they did, they'd think Ronald McDonald. You know what I actually think they're doing with Pennywise, and really, it was all throughout the It book. Stephen King's frame of reference for things that scared him in childhood were the universal monsters. Creature from the Black Lagoon, the Wolfman, the Mummy, they all make appearances in the book, and this Pennywise looks a lot like Lon Chaney's Phantom of the Opera. 
If you think about the bald head and the hair and, and the skeletal facial features, I feel like that's what they were kind of going for. And that the whole idea they might have been working off of is how do we bring back the universal monsters when we don't have the rights to them? <laughs> yeah, they're going to have a werewolf a little later on. But yeah, there's a lot more of it in the book. That said, he's never described as looking like that in the book. But here, yeah, they have to take some liberties. They're working with this actor. They're working with this budget. But... I like the look of Pennywise here. He is... There's something to say about making it simple because, look, clowns are just scary. They're they're weirdo people that paint their faces and put big smiles or frowns on them and wear bright-colored clothes. Like, it's already a scary concept. You don't really need to creep it up that much more. And we're dealing with young Bill primarily here. We did have the scene in England where he gets the phone call. But Little Bill is played by Jonathan Brandis, who is an actor who I watched in a lot of stuff. Sadly killed himself uh, in the 90s, but he was in... Sequest is the thing I associated him with. Yeah. I had no idea he committed suicide. Yeah, he uh, his role was cut from a film. He was complaining about his career. Plus, childhood actor in Hollywood. You know, there's a high rate of suicide for that. But he was in The NeverEnding Story, Ladybugs. I mean, I just saw a lot of stuff with him in it. And I couldn't say I'm a fan of his. Certainly you couldn't say you're a fan of Ladybugs. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> that movie's funnier than it should be. That's all I can say. I haven't seen this since the 90s, but I like this actor. I definitely think Brandis is the better Bill here. I think he is really good in this movie. I'll say all the kid actors are better than the adults. And I'm not going to say anyone is good. I actually don't think there is anyone good, with the exception of Tim Curry, who is making a special appearance. <laughs> and that's very frustrating. <laughs> I think there are some standout performances, and I think Brandis is aces in this. I really do. I think he has the stutter down, but yet he's still able to command where you don't think that he wouldn't be the leader of this group. He stutters a hell of a lot better than Richard Thomas does. I just think that he, for a television production, yeah. does really good. Yeah, well, all he gets to do here at the beginning here is stand by a coffin, go home, take a book off a shelf, look over pictures of Georgie, and then they do the cheesy horror thing of it bleeding out. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm discussing his role over two nights. He's a good actor in this entire thing. But yes, the Bill storyline focuses more on his brother than anything else, but then Bill is going to be around in the other losers' segments. Right. They wisely have structured this so that the most important character, or the most compelling character, Bill, the one that's most associated with King, I suppose, will be the person that everything builds out from. You will meet everyone else through him and the loss of George. Next being Ben Hanscom, or Haystack, as he was in his young days, who is played by John Ritter, we've talked about, as an architect. Award-winning architect! Like, he's on the cover of Time Magazine! Has an architect ever been on the cover of Time Magazine? I'm sure there has, but that is one dour photo of, like, fuck you, Time, I don't want to be on your magazine cover! I mean, that's like his album cover of his songs to slit your wrists to. 
Yeah, it's. I get that they want to show that all of these people, I do believe part of the reason why they survived, what King is trying to say, or the screenwriters have extracted from the novel, what protected them while so many other children died was their imagination. They were able to think deeper. They had a creativity and they'll even use creativity to forge weapons against it. Literally, they're going to spray an inhaler on him and call it battery acid. They're going to say he's the werewolf. And if you shoot him with silver bullets, that's going to kill him. Yeah, that's not creativity. That's just copying a movie. I guess that's trying to show they're creative. It's creative for children to live in a world of fantasy. And that world of fantasy will allow them to go on and have careers in the creative of industry and fashion, architecture, and com- comedy, e- every every form that that would take. More, the thread through all of King's novels is faith. It, you know, if you go back to Salem's lot, you had to have faith in the cross and all of that in order to bring the mystical powers. King often has otherworldly forces that help good people, be it God or, in the case of it, a turtle, as I'm going to keep referring. Except I don't think any of that's in this TV series. What is in this TV series is they have to believe. If they believe in what they're saying, if they believe it is battery acid, if they can go to that level of make-believe, then it's going to burn him. And that's why my go-to is Peter Pan. This feels very Peter Pan. Let's clap and we'll bring Tinkerbell back to life. And that, again, I believe that that is the thing that 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 keeps them alive and, and why 30 years later, they are all successes. Sort of. It should be said, it gets undersold here, but he's stumbling out of a limo, he's drunk, and that is shorthand for he's actually a bachelor bringing home one-night stands who, despite all of this, you know, awards and prestige and money, really is lonely. And I don't think anybody is happy in their current life. Even though they've survived and are financially successful, I don't think we see too many people thriving. The closest I think we come is Bill. He's married. He seems to, like you say, he might be repairing something, but he seems to be in a good marriage and he doesn't seem to have a whole lot on his shoulder. The others, they do have greater pathos. Bill has turned all of his anxiety about monsters into a cottage industry of books, is the way that I see that. He's been able to sell all of that anxiety, where I don't know how Ben builds a... a we see him sca- climb the scaffolding of this building. I don't know how being in Derry would have inspired him to build a skyscraper, but yes. Well, I, I take it his womanizing, it's because he was the fat kid and now he's good looking he's john ritter with a a beard and so he's able to score any woman he wants and we'll see him in the past he's actually going to help these kids build a dam that the that the way that he is going to meet bill and some of the others is at the barrens which is the area where the waterworks meets the natural water and he is going to put that architecture skill to some kind of use by saying here's how we lay the foundation and he gets there because he's being chased by the big bully of the story the human bully of this story henry bowers the greasers because it's a king story yep i mean it's just like stand by me where the greasers were going after the kids here we have the greasers and as king is wont to do he makes the greasers so dangerous i mean john travolta was a greaser in the 70s for gary like it's always the greasers it is especially when he can go back to the 50s when his own childhood was there and i'm Sure, just from reading his writing, he was very scared of bullies who were 
greasers, but he always takes it to this homicidal level of the greasers really will kill you. They're not just going to beat you up. They're not just going to make fun of you. They're going to carve their name in your stomach. Yeah, and I think that's true. I think history has whitewashed the greasers because of things like Grease, and we think of them as musical comedy kind of stereotypes. Or the Fonz. But yeah, I do believe the Switchblade, if we looked up probably the stats on that, there was probably a high correlation between greasers and knife deaths. I don't know even where I'd look that up, but when I was reading King in the 80s, I was able to draw very accurate correlations between what King was writing and what I was living. And I definitely identified as a chunky kid with Ben. I had bullies I was afraid of. I never thought they were going to kill me. I mean, they might pants me, but they're not going to kill me. And so... I always think King is very popular with adolescents because he is able to, more than most adults, relate to that adolescent mindset of what it's like to be in school, what it's like to have friendships, and what it's like to be bullied. Here, I think in on the page, he does a very good job. On the screen, yeah, they don't do so bad. I can't say that the casting of Henry Bowers is the best. Well, here's the thing. When I think about the bullies that I experienced in junior high and high school, they had a certain build, they wore a certain kind of t-shirt, they had a certain kind of haircut, but when you go back and thumb through the yearbook, you're like, wait, that bullied me? That little thing? (laughs) And I think the hard thing for any adult is to look at this actor playing Henry and being like, yeah, he's not at all a threat, a physical threat. They could take him, and maybe that's the point, is that all these people have power when you give them power, when you give them fear. Yeah, except this guy is carving his name onto Ben's stomach. I mean, you don't give him fear. He is taking fear. Yeah, that's pretty extreme. And yeah, fortunately for Ben, he's able to get away from that, go hide, and they basically, uh, the bullies have to do something. So they destroy the dam, and this allows Ben and Bill to become friends. And and we'll find out with Ben, I I guess we're all going to see their encounters with Pennywise. He's the new kid in town. His He's living with his aunt and his mom. He sees his dad, who's what, a dead Vietnam vet? Korea. Korean War. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, ni- but, it's 1960. We haven't gone to Nam yet. Oh, that's right. I, I keep, yes, that's right. It's not 1990. It's 1960. Right. And so, yes, he comes to him as really trying to lure him into those sewers. They're telling you by this segment, and I think we're about 30 minutes into the show, that Pennywise tends to gravitate around these sewers, that their hangout is actually the place for this predator, and he, he will use whatever he can. Okay, so that's why he's targeting these kids, because it's, it's the sewers there. I, I was, does he go after every kid and show him a vision? Because, again, we see, him, we see Pennywise be very aggressive with Georgie and bite his arm off and, and take him. Here, it's like, hey, come follow me, come get some candy. I, I always wonder why he's not more aggressive with these other kids. Well, I mean, it's different psychological tricks. If you saw your dad and, you know, you lived with your single mom who's struggling in this new household, again, you might have a moment of just losing it. It's the kind of the same thing as Georgie. You know, there's not supposed to be a clown in the sewer. You know that your dad died in war and is not really standing there in the water. But for a second, because you want to, and these are highly imaginative kids, you can be tricked into following this clown 
down. He's the Pied Piper. But soon enough, this dad turns into a moss-covered skeleton, and Ben knows that this is actually a place of danger. And it is going after every child who is still vulnerable. If you lose your imagination when you become an adult, you can't see it. Now, in the book, it's described that it actually prefers children because they get more scared. And the analogy it uses is it's like seasoned meat. You can eat a steak without seasoning, but it's better if it's seasoned with childhood fear. That kind of makes sense. And I kind of inferred that because, again, Georgie, he goes right after him. But the rest of these kids he's going to mess with throughout the film. And again, the adults, I took it. Oh, that it's a... Metaphor for adulthood. You, yeah, you lose your imagination. You stop caring about the things you cared about as a child. So there are things here. I just don't think they're that well fleshed out in this version of it. So again, my reading specifically of this and not the book or even the later movie is this is a, a child predator. This is a sexual predator of children. He's not interested in adults. That is why he is targeting these kids. And it can come in the form of anyone because that's how the form of a predator can come. They can look like a family member. They can look like a clown. They can look like a figure of adult authority. And I imagine Stephen King was probably pretty pissed because he worked on this book for five years. When he went to see A Nightmare on Elm Street in theaters in the middle of the writing process and realized Wes Craven beat him to the punch on so much of this, on the children and feeding on the fear. I mean, you ask these questions, Jacob, but I'm like, well, why didn't Freddy kill every kid each time? He was able to kill them, but he was getting stronger off the fear is what they say. In truth, it's just good storytelling to see people struggle and not just get slaughtered. No, I I agree. I would just like a reason given. And look, I've gone back and I've watched those Nightmare on Elm Streets. And yeah, you give some lip service. Okay, I'm fine with that. I, I wish there was just a little bit more lip service why we see him go after some kids so quickly and then but our main characters for the reasons because we need a story to tell he's just going to toy with for most of the most of the time ben at this point is quick to fall for our next character of interest beverly we see him concocting a love poem his cousin tries to get him to take it away from him and it starts a family rift and it lets us know that there is going to be a woman not so much in this version but definitely in the book that comes between bill and ben yeah here it's actually pretty simple to get resolved again it's a tv version that's going to be short but beverly I don't know that either of these actresses is right for this role, but I like the child actress more than Annette O'Toole, who I thought I'd like because she's a familiar face, and I usually am drawn to that, but I think Annette O'Toole was strongly miscast. And again, some of it's what they're handed here. She has one scene to establish in a very heavy-handed fashion that she has essentially married her abusive father. Although, is she married or is this... She calls him a partner. Yeah. Yeah. I got confused by that terminology, but what we do know is she's running a fashion house in Chicago. I mean, they're living together. They're sleeping together. So yeah, they're boyfriend, girlfriend. Yeah. And he's definitely very like, he wants her to be perfect for this presentation. So he fixes her hair just so, and he's just, he's the very stereotypical abuser. If one thing is out of place, slap, you're going to get the hand. And she clocks him with a jar of hand cream. Whatever works. Again, TV violence is not Twin Peaks. That's exactly what happens in the book, though. Oh, is it? Yeah. 
<laughs> I noticed that, yeah, her company is named Beverly by hand. I didn't know if that was some kind of pun or joke, but yeah, she kills him with, with hand cream. I, he may not be dead. In the in the novel, he definitely plays a big part in the last climax of the of, of the story, the later years. But mm-hmm. here, they just write it that she gets away from this abusive person and will meet a nice guy once she gets to Derry. Yeah, and we see that as a child... She was abused by a father who won't abuse her off his own porch, but will yell at her. I don't know why he can't get her in the front yard, but he's physically abusive. They shy away from sexual abuse in this miniseries in that case, whereas it's implied that it was coming for Beverly, but not happening to Beverly in the book. And they are going to go overt with it in the 2017 version here. She's just beaten up. And I should say that actress, Emily Perkins, who I do think is a good young Beverly, she'd go on to be pretty notable in horror. She was in all three Ginger Snaps movies. Notable. Okay. I've never seen any of those, but I actually hear semi-positive things. I, I won't diss what I don't know. Uh, here, her big moment in this flashback as she's escaping to the airport, she's thinking about what her life was like at home, that her dad would read her love poetry that came from Ben and tear it up. And she felt she had no privacy and definitely was, yes, beaten in the same way that this new guy is beating her. And she has this moment where she's in the bathroom mirror and we hear dead kids talking to her through the sink that we, we start to get and we probably heard it a couple times. But this is where I really start to notice you'll float. We all float down here. The the verb float becomes this idea of, of really a death. And the red balloon becomes a metaphor for what's going to happen to her. Yeah, float is an overused term in this movie. Every time Tim Curry is there, he's talking about floating not just this movie, I feel like uh, because maybe because of the 2017 movie was so successful in the marketing, I just feel like we all float down. Like, that is such a thing now. And I, it sounds cool. I don't know what it means, though. I, I, just wait till we get to the deadlights. Again, maybe that sounds really cool in the book. I just, I, is it anything beyond that, though? King can write stuff that you read and you roll with, and then you watch or you hear, and it's silly. I think Deadlights is in there. The float thing was natural in the book because little Georgie was offered a balloon. And he's like, does it float? You know, because... I remember being a kid and helium balloons were much cooler than air balloons. You always want the helium balloon. Yes, exactly. And so he said, does it float? And Pennywise was like, yes, it floats. We all float down here. Great. Used it once. But from that moment on, it's like his buzzword. You know, it's like Pee Wee Herman's word of the day is float. It's not so bad in the book, just because there's so many goddamn words in the book. (laughs) It's a thousand plus pages, lots of words to dilute it. The percentage of words that are float is small, whereas in this TV miniseries, it felt like if every time someone said float, you took a shot, you'd be dead before night two. What the shark fin is in Jaws is what the red balloon is to this TV miniseries. It becomes the calling card to let you know Pennywise is coming. And right here in this moment, the balloon inflates in the sink, pops, spatters the whole bathroom in blood, and the adult can't see it. Her dad comes running, doesn't understand that, well, as much blood as can be put out there on network television (laughs) is spattered around this bathroom. And what does she claim she saw? A spider. So again, they're telling you in little ways, this is what you're going to see. Yeah, and that's 
so much of that straight from King, too. But yeah, I, I actually thought they had quite a bit of blood in that bathroom scene for network TV. You know, given that I, I know that the MPAA had a problem with the amount of blood coming out of Johnny Depp's bed in Nightmare on Elm Street, the fact that you could douse an entire bathroom in blood, I was surprised that they went with that. It's the fact that it's not coming out of a body. It's coming from a balloon. It doesn't look very real. Yeah, but that's the Nightmare on Elm Street. It came from a waterbed, you know? <laughs> it's just- Yeah, it's implied that it's him, though. I mean, I, I feel that is different. As they have in previous setups, we're seeing teases for future characters in this Beverly flashback. This is where Richie and his joy buzzers and his funny voices and his nerdy glasses is coming in. And there's this Boy Scout Stan who's also tagging along behind. They're going to help build this dam to Curtis Mayfield's It's All Right. Have a good time. (laughs) Get it? Is there a point to building the dam? Like, are they trying to flush it out? No, they're just having fun. Oh, okay. I mean, I think there's a metaphor to keeping the waters that it's from protected. That together they're able to build and stave off the threat of it is can be read in there. But, I mean, it also tells you that Ben's going to turn out to be an architect, although one that doesn't design dams, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, and it ultimately doesn't really matter. It's not like he builds some structure at the end of this TV series to defeat the clown. And we've already seen Eddie and his asthma attack who is the next character we're going to meet after commercial break three. But he will have an asthmatic attack. And I think we realize even at this point, because Bill runs off to get him medicine, but by the time he comes back with the medicine, Eddie's actually okay. It's actually that Eddie has anxiety and it manifests itself. His mom has told him he needs this placebo medicine to be better when in fact she's just made him scared of everything. Yeah, the one I thought, oh, he's not a success because he's still living with his mom. He's still got the asthma. No, he's got his own limo company. He's still very successful. And apparently picking up Al Pacino. I don't know if that came through or not, but he's giving people instructions. Is that who that was supposed to be? No, no. He's giving instructions to the guy he's handing the business off to and make sure to pick up Al at this time. It was Pacino called out specifically in the book. So, yeah. Okay. This is an actor who I didn't know. Dennis Christopher. I looked him up. He's done stuff. Breaking Away was his big, big thing. And that was a coming of age. It was the standby me of the 70s. It was about cyclist and was much beloved. I've never seen Chariots of Fire. He's in that. I don't remember him in Django Unchained. Well, let me just put it straight up. You couldn't be gay on TV in 1990. He is the Roddy McDowell. He is the ambiguously gay character, still living with his mom, impacted by his encounter with Pennywise. All of that overmothering is seen as a metaphor for homosexuality. They won't actually call that out because they literally couldn't in network TV back at that time. There were no gay characters on TV, but that's what I'm reading here. And so he's going to take a stand. That's why he's still, quote unquote, a virgin after all of this time. He's going to take a stand and go back to I like the fact that it's shorthand. We're now not seeing the actual phone calls. They feel comfortable enough that we understand the rhythm that they can just show him leaving the house after getting the phone call from Mike. Because I read the book first, I never saw the homosexuality. Now it's now that you pointed out, it's screaming. I mean, overbearing mom. That's all you got to say. That's such a stereotype. In the book, he's married. He married a woman who's just like his mother. But he's married, they've tried to have kids, he is certainly not a virgin, so that now that you point this out, that's a big change they made here that I didn't even catch the significance of. 
Yeah, and where he's going to get attacked is in the boys' locker room, which is, you know, a coded place where oftentimes sexual abuse against young men happens here. It is unfortunate that they have to do this claymation. It is really sad <laughs> that Pennywise has to, like, peel back that drain. They got middle schoolers to play with some clay to do this. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's how bad it looks. I like the claymation. What I think looks bad is the pipes trying to extend from the shower up top where they're like... I mean, that just... Look, yeah, it all looks bad. This is actually where... I, the first time I thought about Elm Street, you brought it up many times, Arnie. Uh, up to this point, I was like, that was just not on my radar, but this is exactly the kind of attack you'd get in one of the later sequels. It's very, very over-the-top, campy, and usually there would just be better puns going on. Like <laughs> Primetime, bitch. Yeah, yeah, I feel like Tim Curry has been hobbled with the dialogue. And... I mean, we had the shower scene in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which was far more effective and frightening than this. Sure. But really, who I kept getting this actor confused with is somebody we talked about. He was in Daredevil. Leland Orser? You guys remember him? He's He's got similar hair. He was in Very Bad Things as, like, the only survivor other than Jon Favreau. He's just done a ton of stuff. But... This guy is almost the spitting image. I just kept getting these two confused. Breaking Away was an Oscar-dominated best picture. Like, it was a big deal. Like, I think that he was maybe the most decorated actor of this bunch, dramatically speaking. Wow. Yeah. Don't know him. But the actor who I've perhaps seen the largest body of work from would be young Richie, who I did not recognize in this movie. I have seen Seth Green in everything from Can't Buy Me Love to his recent sideways ripoff movie that he directed. And with this haircut and those glasses and the voices he does, I did not realize that this was the kid who a year or two later would be doing Airborne. Yeah, I think we all know Seth Green now, and I don't know from what, I'll be honest. Like, I can't name any of his movies. <laughs> I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where he played the werewolf for a couple seasons, was the thing he is most identified with. He did a Woody Allen movie, Radio Days. Yeah, he did do that when he was younger. Without a paddle. Ugh, that's supposed to be awful. Never seen it. <laughs> He was in Can't Hardly Wait, which is a big, it's like a John Hughes movie for people five years to ten years younger than us, but he was really good in it. I've even interviewed Seth twice, and I still didn't recognize him here. Yeah, it's the most successful pairing because he is the younger version of the Star of Night Court, which I really loved at the time. That was a sitcom that I really tried to catch on NBC, a competing network. Mm -hmm. Harry Anderson was... At this point, I was watching a lot of Cheers reruns. He got his start before Night Court as Harry the Hat, a con man who was a recurring character on Cheers. I was a big fan of con men at this period, Stuart, you might remember. And so I kind of idolized Harry Anderson. But <laughs> man, talk about m miscasting. Well, here's the thing. I hate this Richie character. I don't know if this is how he's written in the book, but he is so annoying. Like, I would not let him fill in for Carson, for Conan, for whoever's doing the Late Late Show at 1 a.m. You feel like he really wants to do pigeon English when he's ending his skit with Godzilla. You're like, oh, you really want to do that racist joke. I thought he went there. It felt like he it. really did. But uh, you know what? It, it is what it is. Again, I can't get worked up 
either direction about any of these performances. He's someone that you would recognize, and he's someone that you wouldn't recognize from dramatic work, and I think this movie shows why. Apparently, during this time, he was a screenwriter, and he ended up moving to New Orleans. He and Annette O'Toole were the only two adults, not counting Richard Mazur, who didn't come back for the commentary reunion. Was he also a pedophile? Because that mustache, man. You know, oh boy. between John Ritter's beard and Harry Anderson's mustache and John Boy's ponytail, this is just unfortunate <laughs> hair all around. And they're trying to get respect. It's what you do when you, you change your look. You do something radical to try and be an adult. All these comedians, they want legitimacy. And that's also true of this character. It's He is going to face his demons. He is going to prioritize going to Derry over doing the Johnny Carson show because he remembers what happened. He remembers being in a movie theater when Eddie kicked over his soda on the bullies, and he remembers his own scrapping with that bully that got him face-to-face with a werewolf. Yeah, because they were watching I Was a Teenage Werewolf. He's going to face off against a Michael Landon-looking werewolf. <laughs> I'm cracking up. The problem in 1990 is everyone would think I was a teenage werewolf was pretty silly. Yeah. And, but again, I think even when the book came out, people would think that. But I mean, it was the same year as Teen Wolf. So, I mean, they, we were already parroting <laughs> the 50s parody. And so, again, if this is truly going to do the job of scaring us and showing us what is a, what is fearful in a childhood age, uh, this is not a good direction to go. That said, I don't think anything made around this period was aimed at us. The boomers were ruling in the 80s, and I think that that's who were reading a lot of Stephen King fiction. I knew more adults reading King as a child than I knew schoolmates. Oh, of course. And this whole thing is like the big chill with monsters. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really are. Oh, you just took my reference for night two. <laughs> yeah. When we get to night two, I'll save it for that. But yes, this is, again, more Freddy Krueger that he's got to go down to the boiler room. The janitor, who I believe is also Beverly's father. They don't really tie that bow up, but the, he is asking for Mr. Marsh. Oh, yeah. I didn't catch that. In the book, Mr. Marsh was a janitor at a hospital. So again, I'm so influenced by having read the book before watching. I'm seeing the book in places where the movie's going different. Right. And I, I, again, I'm the biggest compliment I can give this miniseries is I feel they've been very strategic about pulling from the book and changing things as needed. The, the one thing I'm dinging them on is I really feel like this is enough characters. With When we finally get to Richie, I feel like we have enough and that we're going to go and get two more is just c- consolidate. You got to have Mike. You gotta have the guy who stays in town and contacts them all and remembers and is the hub around which the action occurs. The make it Eddie or something. He Eddie stayed with his mom. You could you could combine some characters here. Here's my rewrite. Mike kills himself when the clown comes back and he's Stan. Just have him be the guy that brings everyone back for a funeral and then they remember. And you don't have to do all of this. Could you kill a couple, I suppose, but you could also, you can do anything in an adaptation. I don't feel this is too many. I like this group. I feel that it's a well-rounded group of stereotypes. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I feel like because I like the kid stuff that I'm going along with it, but once we get to when they're adults, 
they all got to matter. They all got to have characters and do something. And it just feels like, well, here's six people because Stan doesn't even really matter for this story. Here's six people and they're just going to kind of do what they did as kids. And it doesn't feel like a full circle where I'm getting something that is meaningful. The problem is, as adults... I look at, again, Richie, Harry Anderson. He's supposed to be afraid. We get to see him vomit a couple of times and have these self-motivating speeches, but I don't know where it's coming from. I don't see the Seth Green version as afraid. And Stan, Stan's the one who's always afraid. That's why he kills himself. And so is Eddie. Again, the asthmatic. That's a hypochondriac. So there's plenty of room to consolidate. And yeah, I feel like Mike Hanlon is just a version of the magical Negro, which Stephen King has done before. He's going to be the most functional here. He's the guy in the library that can keep tracks of all the facts. He's actually going to be introduced in the past as having this big old scrapbook that's just going to data dump everything bad that's ever happened to dairy and so we're gonna see this 30-year pattern where it starts with an easter egg hunt that exploded because it was in an ironworks and then 30 years before that in 1900 we had this big disaster at the dairy standpipe and even the settlers of the town they all disappeared without a trace and there's this this magical book that this one character has for reasons that will just lay it all out so that we can finally start having all the characters realize what the threat is. And it brings them together to consolidate around this book. And there'll even be like a Freddy Krueger moment where like its hand like pops out of a picture and tries to grab them. Yeah, King had to be so pissed. <laughs> he just had to be so pissed. But yeah, I because it's played by... Tim Reed, I like Adult Mike. You know, I was, again, a WKRP guy. I was actively watching WKRP in syndication to catch all the episodes when this aired. And I like Adult Mike. Young Mike, he's the last one to join the group. He is joined when he's being chased by Bowers and his gang, and they have a rock fight. And I feel like as a child, he has the least to do. He's just there with that book. No, he's there to be called the N-word by Henry over and over. Which you could say on television in 1990. That's the biggest shock for what pushed the boundaries here. (laughs) Yeah, can't bite Georgie's arm off on screen, but you could yell the N-word. I remember that they said it on the Jeffersons in the 70s. It was really at OJ where the word became a curse word and not just an insult. But it is true. I mean, Brown versus the Board of Education in the 1950s, it would still be fairly rare to have an integrated school. There really would be an outsider status to Mike. It's why I would find Mike's story really interesting and how he came to befriend a group of white kids would be rather novel 1960s. They're not hippies yet. There isn't that breakdown yet. I feel like that's a story that deserved more time. I feel like all of these storylines needed more time to explore. If you had less characters and consolidated their problems, we we could be done with this let's meet a new one, let's meet a new one thing, and spend the last half hour of this movie really showing the bonding and the working together, which is going to make you like the Losers Club. As it is, it's just a never-ending parade. It's one I don't mind, and I think it may even work better in the Blu-ray format. Yes, there are times when it fades to black, and it's quite obvious that there was a Mentos commercial or Plop Plop Fizz (laughs) Fizz right there, but in this three-hour single-sitting viewing, I'm not annoyed by the pacing of it, and I'm not annoyed by the size of the cast, and... 
you know, it is a good, nice cliffhanger that we end with Stan and then he kills himself. I mean, don't you think it's really rushed that like all of a sudden, oh, there's this clown that's always been here and like they kill it. Like the next commercial break, like it's over, like we're already there. I don't even really understand. I guess, oh, there's a killer clown. So let's go into the sewers to confront it. It, it, it does feel very sudden. Yeah, I feel like you needed to spend a whole commercial segment, an act, on them planning and plotting and testing things and figuring out that the aquifer is where that clown is and how they're going to do it. It's just because they've stacked the deck the way that they have. And yeah, we're meeting adult Stan, who I think is some kind of financier. He's got the pinstripe suit of a banker, <laughs> and he seems to be happily married. She's sewing and watching Perfect Strangers, and all of a sudden he gets that inevitable phone call, and he doesn't go up to pack, he goes to take a bath. And uh, we go back in time and see how they defeated it in the 1960s. Which is a weird memory, is to remember your victory right before you kill yourself. That is a little bit of an odd pairing there. Yeah, what I think we see is that he is the one... Right? He's the one to see it for what it really is. Well, yeah, we get this weird shot when they're in the sewers. Like, there are these lights that fly over them. I'm like, what? We got a UFO all of a sudden <laughs> in this? Like, what is going on with this clown? Like, but I, I guess that's supposed to be a hint as to what's going to come. Yeah, he got pulled off to the side because the bullies had followed them in there and he was pulled away. And so while that was happening, a big bright light may even be the deadlights comes down that pipe, grabs one of the bullies. And so he's seen something beyond the clown. Right. And I think that it's, it's, it's setting up the idea that it's so scary that if you ever see it, you just want to go slash your wrist and think about facing it again. Or your hair turns white as we We'll see with Henry. Yeah, Henry turns into Jim Jarmusch. That was really amazing. <laughs> yes, that's my note. I made that exact reference. The hairstyle, the whiteness, and total Jim Jarmusch. Spitting image. I'm telling you, it's amazing. If you don't know who that is, Google it. You'll be shocked. Yes. I know who it is, but I've never seen him. You've seen him because you've seen Henry here. Yes. yes. I just, again, it's all very rushed here, and you don't want a climax to feel like this. But I just, I feel like you really want to make this feel like they could have won. Instead, it really does feel like, hey, this is just the end of night one, and we'll get to it night two. Well, it, the fight, again, King had the two fights in parallel, which you can do when it's a book. And- you almost could have done that here. It would have been weird to have the children fighting it and intercut the adults fighting it. It could be done. It would be very artsy, I think. I, I don't know what the climax would be for the first night, though. I think you could do it if you had Stan remember when he was attacked initially and then killing himself instead of remembering the <laughs> the freaking bully that folds in half and is sliding down a pipe with lights in it like a disco. Yeah, it doesn't help that like this stuff and we're not even going to see, this is the better of the two climaxes, but it's really <laughs> not where they had the money to do to pull it off. It, it's it's embarrassing. What it becomes is an inverse of the Elm Street thing, you know, in that one, Nancy is like, I don't believe in you and that vanquishes it. Here, they do believe in you and they do believe that he can be stopped with their magical talismans of silver and, you know, the inhaler and all of that. And it it is through that belief that I don't believe they kill it, they suppress him. 
as many people do that don't get psychological help and go through a traumatic situation, they are able to put childhood trauma behind and go leave dairy and be functional for a while until the cracks overcome them and they have to face it. Yeah. And given that it's on a 30 year cycle, I'm not quite sure how much they really accomplish by doing this in the book or in this movie, because he was going to hibernate pretty soon anyway. He'd had his year of carnage. He was going to return 30 years later. They just had a bit of a Pyrrhic victory here where... But don't you see the turtle thought it was very important to give him an early victory so they could ultimately return and be triumph. It's, it's all the turtle's doing. Jacob, you need to read this book because instead of a magic book, they go into a sweat lodge and they have a spirit vision of it crashing to Earth as a meteorite. In- yeah. We'll say that because I think we're actually going to get it. I actually think the new movie that none of us have seen as of this recording is going to have to pay some lip service to that. And won't that be special? I looked at the runtime for that it chapter two. It's almost three hours long. I think we're getting some space turtles. I mean, it, when they fight it, it's actually a psychic spirit battle, mostly between Bill and it. The, it is not as simple as I believe in silver and now you're running. Uh, see, and I kind of like that simplicity. Again, Stuart, you called it out. It's the, that inverse where the monster believes the children. When we see Eddie say, this is battery acid, we'll see, you know, you called out the Phantom of the Opera. We'll see Pennywise's face starting to melt, kind of looking like the Phantom of the Opera. And we know that whatever it is, that round two is going to be so traumatic, Stan can't do it. And he is the only one. A lot of people have grumbled about going back, but they have all gone and done it. They all want to face their fears, except Stan. He is going to end night one with his wrist slit, riding in blood, it on the wall. And that, again, this has been, if nothing else, an incredible buildup for what should be an epic throwdown. And if you hadn't read the book, you wouldn't see this coming because you got Richard Masur, the dad from One Day at a Time and just so many other TV shows. He's as big a star as everybody else in this cast. I mean, he didn't, don't get me wrong. He's no John Ritter or Harry Anderson, who are apparently both minor compared to this Dennis Christopher legend. He was in two Best Picture nominate, nominees and none of them have been. <laughs> but... Richard Masur was not a nobody, and so if you were just watching this and hadn't read 1,200 pages, I'm sure this would be a shock that this guy isn't going to return for night two. But night two is where it turns to shit. (laughs) I have to completely agree. I'll say, if it was just a one-night movie and this was the story, I'd probably lean towards Wheat Recommend for what it is. I enjoy this first night. I enjoy the young actor's. I think that the story is compelling. I'm interested. You know, it's not great, but it would be a weak recommend. I agree because, look, I've had a poked a lot of fun at this first night, but I haven't read the book and I find this kind of a cool story like this weird clown that's haunting these kids. Like, I want to see how it's resolved. Like, I I didn't as a kid. I'm like, ah, I don't want that adult stuff. I'd like the kids stuff. But coming back this time, because we haven't seen chapter two yet, I'm like, yeah, I'm finally going to find out how this all gets resolved. And that was kind of exciting. <laughs> I'll tell you something. My wife watched this with me and We were talking today, and I'm like, I can't wait for It Chapter 2. And she's like, I don't know. That TV movie was so bad. If it's anything like that, I don't want to see it. 
I agree with her. Like, now I'm like, ooh, it can't be this bad, can it? Yeah, I think that they're going to have to do some of this stuff because it's in the book. And there's a lot more in the book that's even more bizarre, as we've already alluded to. And you really need, at the very least, a budget. But I think it's true in the design, in the book itself, all of this stuff was less interesting. If you were to extract the passages with the adults, the only thing I remember liking was the Chinese restaurant. Everything else, there was like a giant lumberjack. There's just a lot of like not very <laughs> scary things. They like the Chinese restaurant too because we're going to spend a lot of time there in this second night. Yeah, even the Chinese restaurant stuff just isn't as interesting as the mummy and especially like the leper and things like that. There's just so much that frightens these children that as adults, I just don't get. And we are we do spend a lot of time with the adults in the book. And yeah, I think if that story had been chronological or a two-parter like this movie series we're going to discuss is, King would have been lambasted for the adult book. Given that it's a TV movie in an era where you couldn't guarantee that the audience had seen the first two hours, again, we have to do more setup. The half of this second night is reintroducing every character at every commercial break with their arrival in Derry. Yeah, they're all going to get scared again, which is fine. Okay, you want to see that Pennywise recognizes them and that they're still frightened by this entity. That's fine, but it's a whole third of this second night. And it just, yeah, feels like a retread. I mean, I do like the scene. It starts off promising. When Bill gets back to Derry and you see Tim Curry as Pennywise in a grave, there's seven Doug and one of them's already covered over. You know, nobody knows except for Pennywise that Stan offed himself. And so we've got this. I think it's a good visual. You know, he went to visit Georgie's grave. There's graves there waiting for all of them. It starts off good. And then we get the bicycle. <laughs> yeah, I don't even really remember Silver as being that big a deal. And there was just so many things in the novel. It wasn't one of my favorite parts. And just seeing these grown men riding around on this bike. And the fact that, again, they're never going to call out a turtle, but now I get it. The turtle led Mike to buy a flat tire repair kit before he ever found Bill's bike at like a pawn shop. Like, yeah, you get the idea that there is some kind of force moving them because of a tire repair kit. <laughs> yeah, and that's not like that in the book. And in the book, in the childhood years, I do feel like they make Silver a supporting character. How Bill gets Silver, the things that Silver does, you know, King loves his names. And so he constantly refers to the bike as Silver. It feels like something that matters. But here, I don't even remember it in night one. This is the big introduction of the bike. Yeah, they've crammed it in here wisely. Again, the, you had an overstuffed first night where we were just trying to keep track of the seven major characters and what had befallen them and what their all their fears were. And now how are they going to fight back? A bicycle. This is one of the weapons <laughs> that they're going to use. <laughs> and then when Richie gets back to town is truthfully the most unintentional funny scene there is. He is scared by his name on a marquee. <laughs> Tim Curry has one of those like New Year's noisemakers and is standing in a balcony <laughs> while poor Harry Anderson is shouting at the librarian because he, there's sounds only he can hear. There's like balloons popping with blood all over the place. Yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> I almost expect this to pull back and be a punked where like the librarian is the one being punked while somebody's yelling at her with blood on his face. 
And Harry Anderson can't do drama. I think John Ritter can, but Harry Anderson, he's a great funny man and magician and all of that. But ooh, is he out of his depth in this? And he seems to be cranky. Like I get from the way that the character is is in it. Like he is always resisting this movie. Like <laughs> everyone else is like, let's hug and then run into the sewers to like use our love power to stop a clown. And he's like, no, nah, that's really stupid. What's funny is during the commentary where the adult actors were all talking, John Ritter was saying like. You know, there's a speech in the book where it talks about how I lost the weight. And he's really arguing with Tommy Lee Wallace. This has to be in there. This has to be in there. And Tommy Lee Wallace is like, we don't have time. We don't have time. And Ritter really fought. He read the book. He went for it. And meanwhile, when Harry Anderson says that's really stupid or Harry Anderson looks disinterested, they're like, well, that was Harry and Richie. Yeah. See, that's what I that's what I felt. <laughs> I actually got that from the actor himself who's used to doing sitcom jokes, having to go here and you be like, you want me to play this scene straight as written. I can't even do it as darkly funny. This can't be like a black comedy here. It's not killer clowns from outer space. Yeah, he doesn't know what to do here, and so he uses his crankiness as a way of getting through. And it's very one note. It is really I should get more from him when at the Chinese restaurant, he runs into the bathroom to have that self-motivating talk. Yeah, he was a cokehead on the page. Like, what was going on with him was that he was a drug abuser. And I don't know if you could have done that on network TV. I don't know. You could talk about busting drug dealers, but I don't know if you could snort a line. You could have shown it. Again, Twin Peaks season one, they found the envelope for Laura. Yeah, I, I just feel like what we should be understanding as we see each person is, the curtain is coming up. They're really not that successful. They're still the traumatized children that they were 30 years ago. And now that they're back in Derry, they're just falling apart. And the clown feels like, yeah, he can still prey on them. That they're no threat. They're too old to do anything about it, is what he keeps taunting. As Ben stops at the Barrens and sees the skeleton again, and there's a new fat kid being beaten up by a new set of bullies. Yeah, just convenient deus ex fat kid. <laughs> I mean, we never see him again. He doesn't even get a name. He's just fat kid in the credits. Yes. Just to remind us, John Ritter was the fat kid, because I don't know that you would have necessarily guessed that. <laughs> I guess that's why they include the speech later on. Arnie, I got to say, you are the only person I ever knew who used an inhaler. Are they placebos? Is every inhaler? Fuck no. Okay. I, no, I it's a steroid. There's multiple. Most of them are like adrenaline, though. You take them in order to get out of an asthma attack. The result is like albuterol. It is not a steroid. It is a stimulator that will... At one point, I was overdosed as a child, and I had a pulse of 190. Oh, it's like the Narcan of its day, then. Yeah. Okay. This, this is the weird plot point to me, and I guess I'll say it again next week for the 2017 version. Is it really a placebo? Like, he, the pharmacist was in on this, tricking Eddie this whole time. Like, his mom wanted him to think he was sick. Munchausen by proxy, yeah. I knew of that syndrome before. I put it in the plot summary, thinking people would know. But when a parent either makes a child sick, we kind of saw that in The Sixth Sense with yeah. the poisoning of the child. Yeah, definitely was an example of that. Or when you just make them think they're sick. And in this case, 
what we're told is she's hammering the doctors and to shut her up, the doctors are prescribing placebos. The pharmacist filling it would obviously know they're placebos. And thus, the pharmacist feels like Eddie's old enough to be told, you know, you don't really have asthma, you're not really sick, but we're going to get a netto tool at one point going, if you think it helps you, that's all that matters. Yeah, I, I thought that's what was happening, but then I couldn't remember, like, in my adult life, I've never seen anyone use an inhaler. Like, are they still used? I used one just now in our act break. I'm having a pretty bad <laughs> asthma time right now. Okay. All right. But do they make placebo inhalers? That does seem crazy to me. Do they make placebo drugs that are used in anything other than clinical trials? I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was a clinical trial thing. <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting that the pharmacist, the doctor, would be doing the will of this unhinged woman to make her child more dependent on her, but a different era. Who can say that certainly was the era where pharmaceutical drugs exploded in the late 50s and early 60s. And you could say with cynicism that, yeah, maybe a drugstore would be happy to sell you anything if they could make a buck. And so we have this scene where we, where Eddie, even as a 40-year-old, is going to see Mr. Keene to get his aspirator. Beverly, she doesn't know her, if her father is alive or dead. No, what I took this as in the book and this is she was taken away from her abusive father. She left, never looked back. She never came back to Derry, forgot Derry, forgot most of her own life, and then went back and decided to reconnect with the abusive father now that she's, you know, continued to be abused, maybe face that early trauma. And we get the scene here that is the It Chapter 2 teaser scene trailer with Jessica Chastain, if you've seen that trailer. I was wondering that. I've seen that trailer. I'm like, oh, this has got to be in the book because they're redoing it here in the TV series. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a creepy scene in the book. It's one of the better adult scenes. It was a creepy scene in the trailer. Not so much here, though. It feels like the first of two examples of them remaking Shining's Woman in Room 237. Like, if you remember Jack Torrance walking in and beautiful hot lady in a tub. Oh, wait, what's on your back? Uh, we kind of get that version here with this kindly old woman who's named Mrs. Kirsch, not Mr. Marsh, and she's going to invite her in for tea, and the tea's going to turn to blood, and before you know it, this old woman is really her dad. I think it's the actor who played her dad in some very unconvincing old age makeup. <laughs> Even before that, because this is her old house, she goes to the bathroom and she gets like transfixed. I love the way Beverly like puts the stopper in the sink so blood can't shoot out, and then they do that little time jump where you think it's been a few seconds and then she comes to and you see that sink almost full like there are little details in here that I like it slides into that shit as you described it Stuart like there are moments here I think a lot of it is the source material they're working from though I think this is some of the more effective stuff in the book I think it's some of the more effective stuff here but when Tim Curry shows up at the end I know he just acted these probably two days apart, but he has less impact here when all he's trying to do is distract Beverly so she can get hit by a pickup truck. Which is weird because she was standing in the middle of the street for so long, like, you would see her there. You would have stopped way before that truck does. And there's one other character coming. We've kind of forgotten about her. She's truly the one uh, from night one you probably didn't pay any attention to. But Audra, Bill's wife, has decided that she's not going to act on this movie. She's going to 
get the next flight to America, upset her director, I think is who it is, Greco, and we're going to find out that she is making her way, going against Bill's wishes. He made her promise, don't come, whatever you do, and she, for reasons... My assumption is, reading between some lines here, she really is trying to understand her husband and get closer to him and feels she needs to see him on his home turf. And I think part of those stuff in the book is they are not having any trouble. They're very happily married for years, but she's worried about him because he took off like a loon. And so she's going to see if she can help him because this is the day before cell phone. She didn't know how to reach him. She couldn't just call. So she had to go. And here again, Pet Cemetery was one year before where we had Denise Crosby racing home to find her husband in Maine. So it seems like a very similar beat. And I thought because this is about magical flat tire repair kits just showing up in that that seven you know lucky number seven they made a big deal about that during the first night they've lost stan i'm like oh, okay this is how they're gonna get number seven they gotta have those seven people to fight pennywise right i that didn't occur to me interesting maybe because i did read the book and kind of knew what was going to happen there but you're right that is one way to play it if in fact seven is the magic number and just to tell what happens in the book it's a little bit different yes audra does come But so does Beverly's husband. She's married, not just living with a guy there. Her abusive husband comes basically to kill her because she fought him and left him. I'm going to 100% guarantee that's going to be in the new movie. Oh, yeah, I think so. And then, much like we're going to see another character have in this, he's becomes Pennywise's servant. He kidnaps Audra and takes her to it. Again, the way that I read this is that they, yeah, they grew up and just found new manifestations of the same abusers and the same problems that they had when they were kids. And they're happy to see each other in this Chinese restaurant. They're trying to focus on the good times. They're trying to remember, really, because they're still having a group sort of hazy fog about what happened to them in the summer of Pennywise. This is such an attempt at the big chill, except when that music kicks in and it's like everyone laughing around the table. I'm like, oh, this is where you like freeze frame John Ritter, freeze frame (laughs) Gary Anderson to introduce whatever sitcom you're watching. It, it, It feels like so TV at this moment. Remind me, John Ritter, Ben, where was he living before coming here? He had his own studio that was at the base of a skyscraper that was still under construction. I think he was living in one of the buildings he was designing. Because he comes with this giant Western belt buckle and this pimpin' <laughs> leather vest. Yeah, it says New York City when it introduces him, so somewhere in New York. But he was a new kid from Texas, and apparently, according to a story, he went back to Texas and became a track team star. Yeah, all right, that's true, but... That vest is something else for 1990. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's the thing about fashion. I've I've learned to give up. Like, you can ridicule the time, but guess what? Everything you're wearing, you will mock in 20 years. I'm going to stand by this Christine Stephen King t-shirt I'm wearing tonight. I'm disappointed it's not Cypressex. (laughs) So am I. And of course, Pennywise has to strike in this moment. If they're all together and they're all feeling good, then it's time to take them down a notch with fortune cookies. Here's what your future holds. <laughs> and now I'm no longer thinking about A Nightmare on Elm Street, the movie. I'm thinking about Freddy's Nightmares, the TV series from a year before with the really bad special effects. Yes, the future holds some very unconvincing, practical monsters of eyeballs and claws. There is a spider leg sticking out there. 
I did like the eyeball one, but yeah, the, most of this looks pretty bad. Yeah, when the owner of the Chinese restaurant comes in, is everything okay? No, we have too little budget. <laughs> <laughs> and the other person that we're finding out at this time, whatever happened to their tormentor, Henry Bowers, he is off staring at the man and moon uh, inside a correctional facility, and Pennywise comes to him almost in the form of one of his old friends. There's a lot going on here and none of it very cohesive or satisfying, but basically hands over a switchblade and through that, this guy is going to cut himself free. And he's now played by Michael Cole. Don't call him Mike Cole, <laughs> but Michael Cole from the Mod Squad looking like he is completely out of place in this powdered wig. He looks delirious. I knew Henry was coming back because, well, he lived from the first night. He just had that white hair. I didn't know it was going to be this bad. I didn't know they were going to superimpose Pennywise's face on the moon. And then he was going to turn into a dog. Yeah, that, I was definitely singing Silver Shamrock when the dog head Pennywise comes walking down the aisle. I'm like, that should have been one of those masks with the skeleton, witch, and pumpkin. The whole thing here is bad. Plus, how is he able to hand over a knife if he's just manifesting? Yeah, that felt that actually felt like a real violation. That really felt like, you know, up to this point, you could have psychological readings, and now Pennywise can just do anything. But yet, at the same time, Pennywise is saying, I need a human being in order to hurt these people. Because I think we're supposed to think, because they're feeling so good, that even though they are old, uh, and even though they do have some trauma, that Pennywise can't get inside their heads enough to kill them his way. He's going to need this guy to go to the Dairy Inn and try to stab people in their hotel room. I mean, does he only want them dead because they've come to kill him? He, he doesn't care about adults. He goes after children. Yeah, I think he's afraid. He is afraid of them because they were the ones who hurt him. In his millennia of eating dairy people, he has never been hurt the way they hurt him and so he's trying to go on the offense i'm just gonna say i think it would have been more helpful rather than the spider we're gonna get later if we found out that the it final form was a human being in their lives if it was henry bowers and they made him uh, the big villain and maybe he was being played by tim curry like all of that I could go with, as is that they throw the bully in here. Just it's barely there. It's it's so little here. You wonder why they bothered at all. I just see the parallels, though, because King often has a monstrous bad that then takes a human bad as its agent. I think of Randall Flagg from The Stand and the way he had Miguel Ferrer as his human lieutenant. There's a lot of cases, and if you read Under the Dome, there's a lot of cases where people become basically possessed, evil, The Shining. Here, it felt like a Stephen King trope being brought in. I don't have a problem with that. I just have a problem with the actor in the wig. Yeah, I just think that if he was the bully that really tormented them the most, then that should be the, the big evil that they fight instead of just some throwaway henchmen for one scene. Yeah, I thought we were going to get way more Henry. I thought he was going to take over as the Pennywise and Pennywise would work through him. He goes out very quick. Yeah, there's a little bit more to him in the book. He does more damage in the book, but he's basically here... They're trying to stick to the book. This is simplified. It's abridged. 
but it's following the book where Henry's job is to, for whatever reason, King didn't want Mike to make it to the final confrontation. He stayed in Derry his whole life waiting for that battle. He's not going to get to go. And it's interesting that this second night was not written by Lawrence D. Cohen, who did write the first night. This was Tommy Lee Wallace got his version and apparently heavily changed it because he felt like whatever the guy turned in, he was happy with night one, but he had to twist things around to make a, a, a night two that made sense to him. Here's the thing with King. I, I get it. He's verbose. Like that. that is one of the reasons I just had a hard time ever getting into his stuff. He just loves to write and words and words and words and words. But watching the first half of this miniseries, okay, I, I could see how this is all in the book, how it could be long. I get to this second night. How do you get to 1,100 pages? Because we, like, we go to a library and then a, a, we have some Chinese food and then we have a killer that's going to kill one person and then die himself. Like, I don't know how you get 1,100 pages based on the second half. Like, this feels like they're stretching just to fill an hour and a half. Again, we're still only in buildup. We're still doing flashbacks. We still got to think about what happened with Stan. And they, you know, this is where they find out about the suicide and Stan pops up as a severed head in the library fridge. And then we got to go back and find out about how he, as a child, was on a bird watching exercise and the mummy clown attacked him in a house. Stop with this buildup. You already did that stuff in night one. We need to see these people plotting, strategizing, fighting back, and seeing what works and doesn't work against their enemies. Yeah, it doesn't feel like we have built on the childhood story. It's just, here's the same thing, but they're adults now. I, I yeah, expected more revelations to come out and, yeah, more plotting, but mm, it's just more of the same. If, if all I knew about Stephen King's It was based on this TV miniseries, I'd say, oh, what, it's like 200 pages because they got nothing here. They're, they're, they're making stuff up to stretch this last night out. Here's what I would say. The first night was about the Losers Club. The second night should be about it. Everything we learn, the only thing we learn is where this clown comes from and how he can be killed. And I have this problem, and it makes me a little bit nervous about the upcoming sequel, Chapter 2. I don't see what role, if you're telling the story like this, I don't see what role the children have anymore. Once we've seen the children defeat it, their story's done. You need to tell us everything we need to know about the kids before they defeat it. The fact that you're going to embellish the backstory further, we should be focusing on the adults if this is the adult story. The way King wrote it, it's in parallel, so you can go back and forth and still have escalation and revelations from the childhood impact the adulthood because this is how they're remembering it. But these interludes with the children on night two, they're my favorite actors here, but yet I feel every minute with them this night is wasted. Yeah, what what we need to understand why they become important is for some reason they live. They, they sit around the hotel and ask that question. Why were we successful when hundreds of others were not? And what they the laundry list they come up with is they were all losers. None of them became parents. And most of them, except Mike, left Derry to go have successful careers. None of that really explains how they were able to fight it. And so I really feel like they needed to have a sharper point on what their power was. We've kind of already talked about that. We felt like their imagination and their creativity allowed them to suppress what happened to them and allowed them to turn common household items into weapons against this 
foe of childhood. That's why I care about these people now. Not what else happened to them in the past, but what about them uniquely? If they're the dream warriors, how do they win? What are their powers individually? What do they bring as a collective? I think that there could be interesting adult stories here. God Knows King has written many good stories regarding adults fighting terror, but for some reason, I think he got so enamored with his own childhood, you know, going back to the 50s and looking at the Stand By Me stuff that the modern day just felt somewhat obligatory, and it is scary to children. It feeds on children, like Jacob said. Even in the book, I'm a little bit confused why it is hunting these adults and why they are just so touched that they can still see it. And yet there's there's a moment here that's kind of a Rocky Horror Picture moment where Brad and Janet, or in this case, it's Bev is seducing Ben, and while they're kissing here in the hotel, suddenly he's noticing the hammer pants, the white gloves. <laughs> the pancake makeup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, another old lady from room 237 here where Pennywise is, again, he can't be intimate because every time he tries to kiss, he's thinking about Pennywise Wise, building on what I've been talking about as Pennywise as an avatar of sexual abuse. And this is all stuff Tommy Lee Wallace brought in himself. Yeah, and again, I think that's helpful. I mean, you can't do the book in two nights on ABC TV. So I think, again, the greatest compliment I can give this movie is I felt them taking, while staying very true to what was in the book, taking and shaping this into uh, a story that stands on its own. And a screenplay that largely follows what you would want to see. Not on the budget you'd want to see. Again, <laughs> the, the problem is in the execution of all these scenes. But if they had had the money, the actors, and a li maybe another half hour, this could be as satisfying as night one. If you cut the kids out of night two, because honestly, your stars are the adults. They paid money to have names as the adults. At that point... Jonathan Brandis, Seth Green, who the hell were they? If you'd cut them out of the night two, you could have had that extra half hour you wanted. But yeah, it seems very weird that Ben is kissing Pennywise, and then just a few minutes later, he and Bev are going to have their confession of love. Yeah, it, again, he's confused about, he can't, he, he knows that he loves that girl from his childhood, but he's not sure if that is not Pennywise playing tricks on him. And again, that would have been good tension to explore. It is often explored much better in the Tim Curry movie, Rocky Horror Picture Show. That is kind of the horror of that movie is, is the sexuality and the bisexuality. Meanwhile, functional Mike is just going to kick off the climax. He gets stabbed by Henry, who conveniently then just gets stabbed himself. And they take him to the hospital. And Mike basically can't go with them. Again, why do we need him then? And I blame King again for kicking Mike out of the climax. I get it. You killed Stan, so you're never going to have the seven again. You got four white boys. <laughs> one of them sit it out and then might go, do you have to play to the cliche that the black man's the first to fall? Yeah, especially because none of them feel that necessary for what we're going to see to defeat Pennywise. Like, none of them, it's not like each one of them brings a special skill that they're going to need. It's, they're going to kick a bug at the end. And that's a mistake. Again, that's what I was advocating earlier is we should have the Dream Warriors. They should in night two be finding out why they're special and finding out why this clown is vulnerable. And in the book, they do have certain skills. Some of them are psychic in battling it. And 
here we've got Beverly is very good with a slingshot. And in the book also, Mike has stuff to do in the hospital. Here, he's just out of the movie now. He just, he's like, here's two silver earrings. They're going to be avatars for me and Stan. Yeah, he he went back down into the sewers like 10 years ago. And As a suicide were... attempt, he was depressed. Yeah. Dramatically, there might have been a way to play that, but having Tim Reed recite this monologue in bed before they go into this very underwhelming climax is not getting me enthused about the final battle. Each, whereas on night one, each act I felt built on the last one, and yeah. we had an introduction of the characters, and I, we really built to that confrontation with it, which, yes, was rushed, but we built here... Each segment of this, each act, is getting worse. Yeah, <laughs> and it's going to, the climax is yep. the worst of all. Yeah, you're closing yep. <laughs> your eyes in horror because you don't want to see any more of this badness. You just really, <laughs> it's so weird too. Like, they, I thought like the thing that would finally motivate them is they turn on the TV and they find out another five-year-old girl has gone missing. And Richie is just like, that's all he needs to hear. He's leaving. Like, that's the thing to be like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go out of here. I'm, I, I don't want to do this anymore. It's for Bill to have some psychic moment with Georgie and his mother playing for Elise in the hotel lobby and that gets everybody to go in there. That is such a weird moment because Rick Bill's like, I don't even know what's real anymore because you saw a woman playing the piano with a kid. I guess we saw his mom playing the piano, but that was Sunday night. It's Monday night now. Like, I don't like do a call back to that part if you're going to make that a big pivotal turning point for Bill. No, you just say that kids are dying and everyone realizes it's not about them and that they've had 30 good years and that they need to protect future children from abuse. So we're, we're self-sacrificing something the boomers would not do <laughs> yeah i mean we'll talk about a little bit more next week some of the stuff they cut from the children's climax here but a big theme of king's writing is that this is the passage from childhood to adulthood and when they finish their fight with it they walk out innocence is lost as adults, then, you could read that as the stage of the next one, which would be, hey, Boomers, step out of the way, make some room for Gen X and work to pave that road. That didn't happen with the real Boomers, and that's not what's going to happen on screen. You know what? I almost feel like as they walk into these sewers, I would accept it. Maybe it would have been confusing for some people if they actually regressed into their childhood self again. And we actually saw the kid actors who were as good, maybe even a little bit better than most of these TV actors that have been night two. And we saw them as kids fighting it all over again and reprocessing their childhood trauma. I think that's a step too far Again, how much do you want to rewrite King? A lot. Stephen King wrote 1,400 pages, and you need to reduce that in lots of ways. And there's a turtle. Yes, and there are <laughs> bad ideas, lots of them, that you want to excise. Well, I think that the children had their fight, and now it's time for the adults to have their fight. I will say this, throwing Audra in the mix... It would be odd to see a child fighting for a grown woman. You know, that, that yeah, Audra has, we've seen one scene of her pulling into the gas station and this 
gas station attendant who was, of course, Pennywise, has uh, hypnotized her. This is where we finally get the idea of the deadlights, I think. That he does have these magical twinkling eyes. I don't think they use this effect in any earlier scene. There were the deadlights at the end coming off of the belly. The All we saw of the spider at the end of night one was its belly. And Tommy Lee Wallace didn't even want to show that much. We had a lot of POV shots from it in the first fight. But there is the shot of the underbelly shining the deadlights. Right. And this gas station, it's really Pennywise at this point going, don't you want it? Which again, just made me think Rocky Horror, don't dream it, be it. Like, I really feel like they are kind of cast. I am seeing a lot of Tim Curry at this point. I do feel like they're using his his well-regarded persona as uh, yeah, a seducer. And so he has taken this woman, boys and girls alike, sucked her down into this childhood place of horror. And it would be, yes, I guess, for Bill to fight for his wife. And why can she see him? It makes more sense when she's abducted by a human and taken as a sacrifice to the monster. And I could get why insane humans and humans who even encountered it and survived could see it. But Audra being abducted by it at a gas station outside of Derry feels like as big a breaking of the rules as the switchblade suddenly in Henry's hand. Some of this is King. I remember when we talked about the stand, like everything about that was built up as well. When they finally walk into Las Vegas and we're there for the big apocalypse, it's just a big deus ex machina of a hand and it's over. And I kind of feel King hasn't learned any better how to fight here. And one of the things that I've said in all the books and notches I've done pretty much, especially for novels, and I will continue, is King's bad at endings. His best endings are either The Shining, which actually is a really good ending, or Firestarter, where he literally just stopped. He's like, I don't know what to write next. Book's done. Move it on to the next one. But he is not great at endings, and... The longer the book, the weirder the ending. I mean, Under the Dome, I just always feel so let down after taking these huge, epic journeys in his books <laughs> to find how they resolve. <laughs> this is no different. It sounds like they're just epic, though, because he doesn't know how to end it, so he just keeps going. <laughs> yeah, here's what I know. If the prop guy shows me this spider, <laughs> and then I look over and see the work that Tim Curry's been doing, you make them fight Tim Curry. You never bring that spider in there. You don't show this Ray Harryhausen stop motion stuff. No, and Tommy Lee Wallace, not happy with this spider, knew at the time he had given the prop guys some designs, and they came back with this, and he's like, that wasn't what I drew for you. And they said, yeah, but what you drew wasn't, we couldn't do it on the budget, so here's what you've got. And I gotta imagine, give me the same amount of money, I could come up with something better. I'll, I'll, I'll get some macaroni art, I could develop something better than this spider. This rod puppet is, <laughs> I was laughing when this was airing, and I was 16 years old. It was funny. Yeah, I came back to see this, and it did not disappoint in how outrageously horrible. It justified my feeling that I was so glad I turned it off midnight last night. They're really, yeah, it's a, it's a deal killer. And you know what? There are stuff here. One-Armed Georgie. That scene of the boat sailing back to them, go with that. Just have them all face their fears. Again, maybe as children. Again, I feel like you just take it into this surrealistic realm and you don't have a big tear it up 
the spider climax if this is your prop. Yeah, and this makes me so scared for chapter two. So scared. Mm -hmm. I know it's not going to look this bad, but I don't even know. Is this the climate? I mean, is this what happens? They find a spider, they like kick it and step on it like it's a common house cockroach or something. When I read the book, that very, very large book, and we finally got there and found out it was a spider. Keep in mind, I I have had a mild, maybe I'll have it again, but a, a mild case of arachnophobia at the time. Spiders were scary to me. I was still disappointed. Like, because what can you do? If the thing can be anything that you fear, I the way that I interpret it in this movie is that they've been telling us all along, everyone's been mentioning spiders in the drain and itsy bitsy spider and what have you, is that what you most fear is prevalent. It's everywhere. It's common as a household spider and just as scary if you allow fear to overtake you. But in the book, it's not truly a spider either. It's an interdimensional ancient being that is a a beam of light as much as anything (laughs) yeah i wrote down space spider in my notes but like it's literally spinning webs and just sticking people to the wall it is a spider yeah it's just one of those scenarios here where this is where i can't believe people actually hold this in high regard yeah Tim Curry was good. And you guys know I have a bias against movies that take away the villainous actor and replace them with some special effect at the end anyway, because you want to see that performance. Tim Curry has been pretty good throughout both nights. You take him away and you replace him with this. That is a killer moment. I could love everything up to this, but you fail the ending like that and it's a red arrow. I mean, this spider walks on. I could just turn it off at this point. I mean... I almost thought John Boy was the worst thing about this series until Spider Boy came out. Yeah, and then they have this literal sacrificial version. Like, Eddie, out of nowhere, just like, Hey, everybody, before we walk through this little troll door, I want to tell you, I've just, like, been hanging out with my mom, and I'm not getting any. And so... You mean he didn't have sex with Beverly when they were children? Yeah. That was the gangbang! Yeah, hold that thought till <laughs> next week. <laughs> but... Yeah, that basically, I think, you know, it's it's true of, of slasher movies of that era. It was the virgin to, well, usually they live, though, but, like, they're the ones to kill the beast, and I, you know, he pulls out his inhaler, battery acid, what have you. Well, if you're going with that he was subtly gay, the gays can't live in a horror movie anyway. That's very true as well, yes. It's, it's a surprise that the black guy lives, but... <laughs> Also, Beverly is firing the earrings, and they just throw a lot of things in here, and none of it making it better. They eventually just gang up on the spider, knock it over, rip it to pieces, and catharsis. And then it's over. Just make it so that it is dead, Audra's okay, let's just have them say goodbye and roll the credits. Do not include this segment that King included in the book of riding the bicycle to wake up Audra. This is in the book? This They didn't make this up? I'm going to tell you right now, you will be shocked. There must be a hundred pages between the spider being vanquished and you actually closing the cover. <laughs> There is so much wrap-up, including newspaper articles and just things you were never asking. He doesn't know how to end it, does he? Oh, my God. It was a meandering, meandering thing. So I feel bad for the writers about, like, what can we do and what was this story all about? And I guess Bill was our central character. Can we at least leave it sad? Like, Audra is 
been mesmerized by the deadlights that they I mean like I would be more comfortable with the idea of an uncertain future uh, something a little poignant as opposed to this magical ET ride through what does not look like <laughs> small town main traffic I don't like the poignant ending Eddie died that's supposed to be our sadness here it's dead the spell is broken Audra's awake. <laughs> yeah, do we even need Audra? I mean, really, once you were digging into this, now I'm like, why even have the wife? Maybe none of them have been successful in relationship. Yeah, or she just doesn't come. Again, there was an adherence to King's book that I believe was mandated somewhat by ABC and a lack of creativity. They did change some stuff and they removed some unfilmable things like a giant turtle, but I... Just think that they adhered too close to the book for the time they had. Uh, You know what Audra does? It allows us to be happy that Ben and Beverly hook up and get married. Because otherwise, it's a love triangle where we got to pick between two guys that we both liked and who would she go with. You know, here it's just all very neat. Ben and Bev go off to be happy together. Richie becomes Chevy Chase in a comedic movie. And who's the actor who he's playing against? Because Mike in the narration says he's co-starring with an actor that any of the gang could have told you looks a lot like Eddie. And Eddie's dead. And the guy who he's like fighting a sword fight with a tennis racket has a mustache and an Indiana Jones hat. I'm trying to figure out who they're obliquely referencing. Uh, Tom Selleck almost played Indiana Jones and is famous for his mustache. But that looked like nothing like Eddie. And Tom Selleck <laughs> was in some really terrible comedy movies in the late 80s. Well, yeah, but still looks nothing like Eddie. I, You know what? It doesn't matter. The... The thing is, like, I really dislike Beverly by the end of this because she goes to Ben like, oh, you just had to grow into that person I would love. I'm like, oh, you are shallow. You like couldn't love the fat kid that was writing beautiful poetry, (laughs) but you'll love the skinny John Ritter. Good luck to y'all. Well, as they drive out of town, it is over. But Jacob Stewart, do you recommend it? Jacob. I think we know, but let me tell you my alternate not recommend that I thought I was going to give as I was watching this. Because whenever I watch a film, and even before I was on Now Playing, I'm always like gauging, okay, where am I with this movie? Is it up? Is it down? Am I liking it? Disliking it? You know, what's going on? So as I'm watching this, you know, the first night, again, not great acting, not great production values, but I'm into the story. I want to see how it evolves. And the first act of the second night, okay, we're retreading some stuff, but I'm still into this. So I thought I was going to say, hey, if you weren't going to make it to 2019 to see It Chapters 1 and 2, if those things didn't exist, uh, this would be a a good substitute, a good alternate reality where this is the only version of it. And I can recommend it as that because it's an interesting story. But as this thing went along... Now it makes me nervous for chapter two. That's how bad the second night was. Like, I'm like, is this really the story they're going to tell? Like, I felt like they had nothing to do the second night. Like, they're going to retread stuff for an hour and then have a quick little resolution that is not very satisfying. Even if if that puppet looked good, it, I still don't find it very satisfying. Like, the problem with it is Monday night. <laughs> like, it goes real bad. It didn't have a great start, again, with the budget and the acting all that, but I was into the story, and they throw that all away. I just, I, I want to like it, but I guess I'm not a millennial because I don't have fond memories for it, and I think 
Well, unless chapter two really shits the bed, I think we're going to get something more satisfying. So this will just end up being a footnote. So not recommend. At the very least, we're not going to have two sitcom stars in the lead. (laughs) (laughs) Stuart. Best episode of Freddy's Nightmares or hopelessly undernourished film that was doomed when it was conceived as network miniseries. I mean, case could be made for both. And I'll start with the compliments. The writer, the director, they did an excellent job shaping the material for TV. If that's where it was going to go in 1990, given those constraints, which are numerous, probably too numerous to give you a satisfying movie. It becomes a Reader's Digest sanitized version of the book. I still think it's impressive how they found a spine in telling a moving story about child abuse. Unfortunately, none of the children, none of the actors are very captivating. Only Tim Curry is good and he's barely here. And it's really frustrating that they spend so much time on the buildup and then there's no real there there when it's time to fight. I got tired of the gimmick in night one that every commercial break sets up a new character and night two is a complete shambles. I'll give this movie the backhanded compliment that I think of the ones that we've watched and the ones that I remember, this is the best ABC miniseries of Stephen King. Better than The Stand? Yeah. Oh, Oh, bullshit. Oh, easily. It's not four nights long. Yeah. And that last night of The Stand is equally terrible. But now that, yeah, as Jacob points out, we have a proper movie adaptation that's been well-funded. What is the point of this? This balloon don't float. Mild not recommend. What I can grant this movie is it was the first, right? It was the first Stephen King miniseries, not counting Salem's Lot in the 70s. King had been in a lot of movies since Salem's Lot, but they hadn't really looked at doing television beyond him writing an episode of Twilight Zone or what have you. And so... Here, by being the first, I can say, you know, it may not have been good, but look what it built to. And I do think The Stand is something that is worth having a couple of stepping stones. But we haven't gotten to them yet, but when we get to the Langoliers and the Tommy Knockers, I'm not sure that the end was worth the cost. So here, yeah, it's just underfunded and not ready for prime time it needed to be on pay cable i mean there was original programming on hbo but they hadn't done the big prestige expensive stuff that they're doing today i think that this is a good tim curry performance and i do think that he has to a generation become an icon they still make toys and t-shirts and all of that with the Tim Curry it, as well as the Bill Skarsgård it we're going to talk about next week. This has a place in people's hearts. I feel bad, but it's a pretty strong not recommend because it took the problematic parts of the book and made them worse while never elevating anything better than the book. So yeah, it's three red arrows and I'm stepping on the spider. Yeah, and I get that people like it. I can understand it, and it's definitely one of those that give you saw it at the right time back in the day. I just don't think that anybody that, after they get a look at what's coming, is going to want to come back to this, except as some kind of history lesson in what it was like before CGI effects. (laughs) It's just so bad. Somebody needed to 
take an executive decision and be like, we don't care what we spent on the spider. Let's just write it off and do something else. Like you said, reshoot Tim Curry. But I wonder if TV scheduling just didn't even allow for it. This is what you got. This is what you air. Yeah. And you know what? This is part of the reason why I wasn't a big TV watcher and wasn't a fan of made for TV movies. I grew up in this era where there was a clear delineation between the quality you could get on your home screen and the quality you got in a movie theater. We had to wait 27 years, almost like the the alien itself's hibernation, but they eventually get there 27 years after this TV movie, 2017. We're going to talk about chapter one next week. And in the meantime, if you are a gold level donor, you're going to get a very different kind of review. We're doing an indie film by Steven Soderbergh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Yeah, really, the indie film to open up indie films into the mainstream. It, it made a surprising amount of money in the summer of 1989 and changed the way a lot of people thought about Andy McDowell and James Spader. The only connection I can find, Laura San Giacomo is in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and she was Satan's bride in the miniseries of The Stand. She's much better in Sex, Lies, and Videotape. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you haven't donated yet, this is... One of our very last Summer of 89 films, our spring-summer donation series, is ending as it should. School is going back. It's time to wrap up summer, move on to fall. So just a couple weeks left. We have only Sex, Lies, and Videotape and The Abyss left, and the donation drive ends. So if you want to get in on it, head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. We really appreciate your support. If you're a patron of $25 or more, you're going to get that review you're also going to get a survey if you're one of our patrons at any level we've done our patron campaign for a couple of years now we're looking at what we can do just to make it more rewarding for our patrons so you will be getting a newsletter from us with a link to a survey we want your feedback on what you think of the rewards you're getting and what we can do to make it better so Stuart, jacob thank you for joining me we'll be back next week with it And until then, it is over. I swear, if it isn't dead, if it ever comes back, we'll come back too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Come back anytime. Bring your friends. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You know, Eddie, it's been great. What? Okay, see you later. Bye, Eddie. Bye, Eddie. Bye. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. This isn't real enough for you, Billy. I'm not real enough for you. It wasn't real enough for Georgie. And also, come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. Don't you want it? 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 In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. From what I hear, the list is longer than my wang. That's not saying much. 
In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. I never felt like a loser when I was with all you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. We were all together. That's why we're still alive. Why plan to keep it that way? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I forgot. How could I forget? You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. I've got to do something. Help me. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're working too hard, kid. Associate produced by Jason. You're doing fine. You can handle this. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. I know you're going to think this is crazy. I certainly think it's crazy. Now playing Credit Narration by Brock. Do what you always do. Start talking. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. They're gazebos! They're bullshit! Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. I guess so. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. <laughs> I'll drive you crazy and I'll kill you all. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. See you in your dreams. Beep, beep, Richie. And Ed O'Toole, Tim Reed, John Ritter, and Richard Thomas. Did you say Ed O'Toole? I said Annette O'Toole. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I did not hear that the full name. <laughs> Ed O'Toole. That I be. just heard. Ed, yeah, I just heard the last syllable. I guess. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna kill some sacred cat. We're gonna kill some sacred cows. I'm turning into Bill Denneber. We're gonna kill some sacred c- 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 cows. I was a he- step ahead of you on two of them. I knew I those two. I, I was like, I was going to prompt you, and then I'm like, oh, he knows. Uh, what's the one with the Lango layers? But then I did it and I'm like, yeah, I guess that is what that is. <laughs> Airborne? Yeah, the rollerblading movie? Oh, I thought you were trying to say yeah. Airbud. Or, or like the... the, the, the <laughs> with the, the dog the, slam dunking? I don't know what Airborne is. <laughs> oh, it's a big rollerblading movie, right? I, a big rollerblading it's movie. It's right there with Gleaming the Cube. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't see that one either. <laughs> So clearly I need to catch up. I saw Solar Babies. Right now, right now, Jason is like just weeping. You, you should watch Gleam in the Cube. It, it's skateboarders defeat arms dealers. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm up. I'm game. Christian Slater, amazing. 
I just, again, it's all very rushed here, and you don't want a climax to feel like this. You want How to do be I excited. want a climax to feel? You, you, I mean, that you're in the <laughs> moment, right? I mean, you're making a sexual joke? Yes. Okay. Well, yes. Well, that's personal. You know, I don't need to know how you climax. <laughs> all right, say it again. 